our podcast this week, we share a slice of pizza, film school with Joe and Anthony Russo, and we dare to dream with the secret Dare to Dream star Josh Lucas, plus the usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that is slowly melting in the late UK summer sun. Is this the heat that Robert De Niro warned us all about? How can we walk out on this in 30 seconds flat? It's everywhere! Hello pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the Emperor Podcast, which you'll be delighted to know came very, very close this week to being genuinely the first trouser-free Empire podcast. Luckily, the heat has abated and I am wearing shorts. That's my compromise. I am wearing shorts. Everybody, my three colleagues of such lethal cunning are going to be absolutely delighted about that. But who are they? Who are they? I hear you cry. Well, as ever, we're joined by our geek queen, Helen O'Hara. Hello. How are you, Helen O'Hara? I am clutching a an ice pack to my bosom the better to stay <laughs> you know word. in one place in one piece Ooh. it's too hot <laughs> it's hot isn't it it's it fucking is, hot i mean I, we're probably the first people to comment on this or notice it this week but uh, but yeah it is <laughs> quite hot actually yeah i don't know if you've noticed but it's quite <laughs> hot out there uh we're not used to heat being brits and uh but anyway uh, speaking of heat, here's a man who's met Robert De Niro and got a picture taken with Robert De Niro and then had to make Robert De Niro wait for ages whilst, <laughs> whilst he tried to figure out how to work the camera. It is Empire's acting editor. He is an author, a visionary, dream weaver. It is Nick Dissemblian. You missed a line in my prepared statement. Go back. <laughs> no, it's all true. It's all true. It's all true. I am I am melting. I am a half, half melty man. Um, I just want, have you guys seen Daylight, the Stallone movie where he has to yes. go into a, a tunnel or go out of a tunnel? I can't remember oh, which. Yeah. Do you remember yeah, that scene that where- That sounds he- exciting. <laughs> he has to go into <laughs> or out of a tunnel. I think he goes in and then out and then he forget he goes back in. But there's a point in the film, the best bit of the film is when he has to go through five giant fans. And I was dreaming of being Stallone in Daylight this week. Like I would love to have five enormous fans to crawl through. What's Stallone's character name in that? Do we know? Can we remember? Oh, it's a good one. It's a good one. No, because I, I commented, I looked it up and I, I was... It, it's uh, like Chip McCooligan or something like that, isn't it? It's something weird like that. It's, it's or a really it good one. It's a really good one. Uh, it was That was meant to be a sequel to Cliffhanger originally, where he mm. obviously played Gabe, Gabe Walker. Oh, yeah. And instead, he plays an even better character. I'm stalling for time here. It's Ray. It's Ray. I'm, I'm guessing it's Ray. This is what I'm guessing. It's Ray. It's, it's not. It's Kit Latura. Kit Latura! Kit Latura. And it's a character name so great that he has it written on his costume. Wow. <laughs> just, to remind, just to remind Stallone what his character name is that particular day. Well, Nick, welcome to the podcast. Um, I will be delving deep into your De Niro uh, recollections later you, on. You. You. That's it. You've, actually, you've met him loads of times, haven't you, De Niro? Twice. I'm sure he that's remembers neither of them. That's, that's, that's that's double one. It's double the number. Um, that's amazing. Yeah. It Did he amazing. ever tell you to have nothing in your life that you couldn't walk out on in 30 seconds flat if you felt the heat around the corner? He didn't mention that. I wish he had. It sounds like <laughs> some good advice. It didn't come up. I did, I did have to lower his Venetian blinds at his behest, which was one of the most awkward experiences of my life. He went, hey, can you, uh, can you close that? And I was like, oh, is he talking to someone else? No, he's, he's, he's literally talking to me. And then I had to lower these blinds. And I, it's one of, my, one of the things I'm worst at in the world is lowering blinds or shutters of any kind. And there were like four bits of string dangling off. And I thought, oh my God, De Niro is watching me doing this. Like it's already, I, I hate doing it anyway. And then I pulled the string and it went way up on one side. I pulled the other string and it went up. Ah, it was a nightmare. <laughs> That's the story. That's the anecdote. That's all you're getting. 
Other podcasts have people who've gone on boozy lunches with movie stars or they've ended up doing cocaine <laughs> off someone's arse crack on a yacht in the south of France. And no, we have, you know, fumbling with Phoenician blinds and, and cameras. That's that's what we have, pretty much. But um, speaking of doing cocaine off someone's arse crack in the south of France, it's Ben Travis. What? How are you, Ben? <laughs> ben, we just have a word about this afterwards. Yeah, I am. I'm exhausted. I've come off a round of interviews and I'm looking for my next hit. Um, I've had to close all of the windows in this room uh, mm-hmm. so that the sound of the traffic doesn't come in. So over the course of this podcast, I'm slowly going to become the uh, the melty man from uh, from RoboCop. I'm, my <laughs> flesh is slowly going to drip off, and there's nothing I can do about it. So is yeah. he is Enjoy. he cinema's premium melty man? Is there a better melty man? There's I mean, a good one in X Men, isn't there? The, the Nazi in Raiders: of The Lost Ark is oh, pretty melty. Yeah. Yeah. I have a I have a tote candle so which melts yes, his face as it burns down. It's amazing. Yeah. Also, um, the people in Planet Terror when they get hit by the Uzi stuff, they basically melt apart, don't they? They get very drippy very quickly. Yeah, Tarantino That's has a, one of his appendages is is melty, and it's not not particularly fun to watch. <laughs> and not technically a man, but the T one thousand as well. Obviously, he is a good melty man. He's an absolute melt. But no, it's it's a, it's a meal in Robocop because he's not only is he a melty man, but he's a splatty man as well. So he goes he goes everywhere at the end. <laughs> it's the, the one little... two, isn't it? You want to melt and then get hit by something. We uh, we're all melting here, so let's try and make this a quick Empire podcast. I know that thing that's a contradiction in terms. Let's try and do a tight four and a half hour recording here, people, uh, and let's go straight into. Uh, well, here's the thing. There's no James this week, so Helen thought that the fact section was being rested for a week. I didn't. I hoped. I didn't think for a moment. Sadly, that is not the case. It is back, bigger and badder than ever before. And uh, I'm going to ask Nick to come in with a fact. Blimey. And wow us all. So this is, in case you don't know what this is, this is the uh, film fact section. The three colleagues of such lethal cunning impress me every week with a fact and I give a point to the winner. Nick, go. I've got two quick caveats. One is I forgot about this till about three minutes before we started. Uh, The other one is I haven't technically listened to every episode. So uh, there may, this fact may already be out there. It's pretty explosive. Okay, Um, bring it. I'm pretty sure it won't be because it's not that good because I found it in three minutes. But... (laughs) Did you guys know that Harrison Ford has played Indiana Jones in live action five times? Five You're going to try and get us to guess the fifth time, right? Times. Did you guys know well, this? Well, I only count three, but please explain. <laughs> yes. Yeah, um, so there was the, the fan fiction film that they made a few years ago. There was oh, I suppose that. he was in that. Yeah, okay. So he's in, he's in Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, isn't he? He's, he appears in an episode of Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. The episode is called Indiana Jones and the Mystery of the Blues. He's in it for about four minutes. Uh, and he takes down some uh, henchmen using a saxophone, which is pretty cool. Saxophone. He, he finds so an I- old saxophone. He sits in a rocking chair. <laughs> I think it was probably in Harrison Ford's contract that the cameo had to involve him sitting in a rocking chair. And uh, blasts the saxophone, and outside the cabin, some snow falls onto the head of the hench- the villains who, who are menacing him and his sidekick, Grey Cloud. Now, that is an amazing fact already. I'm winning, but that's not the fact. <laughs> Oh my the god, he's got full James. The fact is that Harrison Ford, as Indiana Jones, has a beard in this episode. What? Yeah. Wow. Bearded Indy. And the reason is that Harrison Ford was shooting The Fugitive at the time, and he was doing the scenes where he has a beard at the beginning of the film, and uh, he couldn't shave it. So you get bearded Indy. That's it. That's all I've got. But I, I think you'll agree it's a good one. You know, I've never seen the young Indiana Jones Chronicles. Not a single episode. Aww. 
I'm watching them at the moment. They're, they're extremely long. Every episode's like two hours, but um, I'm quite enjoying them. There's some really good people involved. Nick Rogue, Frank Darabont, Mike Newell, some really uh-huh. great directors, some good actors, um, very young, Elizabeth Hurley. Yeah, yeah, it's worth watching. It's interesting because uh, I thought that, that you know I, I knew he was in that show, but I thought he was playing old indie recounting his story at the beginning. I thought he was in old age makeup. That's what I that's what I'd learned over the years. But he's actually in it as Indiana Jones. Mm-hmm. What gives why him and not, not Sean Patrick Flannery in that moment? Oh, it's a bookend. He um he he talk he finds the saxophone he sits there he remembers his jazz days and then it cuts back it flashes <laughs> back to Indiana Jones's two hour long <laughs> jazz jazz experiences that bit's maybe not as good <laughs> so the five it's worth watching for the five minutes at the beginning and end total Amazing. total of five minutes uh, the two hours Amazing. in between is maybe. Talking of beardy Harrison Ford, there is a bearded Han Solo in the video game Star Wars Battlefront 2. There are story segments of that set after the original trilogy, and uh, you meet Han Solo in Maz Kanata's castle bar thing, and he's, uh, he's beardy for some reason. They just thought they'd give him a beard. Awesome. He's, he's good he at beards. He looks good with a beard, you know. You should do it more. Yeah. yeah. He does. He does. He Was really that your does. fact, then? <laughs> it's probably better than my fact because I like like Nick and like every previous fact I've had to come up with for this podcast has been hastily researched on IMDb trivia seconds before uh, Chris hit record. So uh, it's going to be another doozy. It's another short one. You'll be you'll be relieved to know. Can anyone recall a, a recent example of a famous actor in a franchise movie having uh, having to come back for reshoots and he had a beard because he was shooting another movie and they had to somehow cover it up. Yes. I can think of a (laughs) moustache. Yeah, obviously the moustache for uh, Justice League. But also there's the beard at the end of Avengers. Sharon Carter's not in the Avengers, Helen. Hey. (laughs) Yeah, it's Chris Evans, right? And uh, they covered up with some weird makeup and he looks like he's been stung. He looks like he's been stung by bees, like in My Girl. (laughs) So when does this happen? I've never spotted that. In the shawarma at the very end. Yeah, when they're just all eating silently, uh, right. Cap has his hand over his face. <laughs> In my memory, he's got a newspaper up. <laughs> yeah. he's, he's got, he's got did, a series of elaborate disguises. Yeah. Um, Didn't they shoot yeah. that on the day of the premiere? Yeah, I believe so. They did. Yeah, they, they certainly did. Um, I'm glad we established which, that. Which, which I wasn't at. It's fine. Go on, Chris. Uh, finish the phrase. Come on. No. It's fine, totally fine, totally fine. But it was at the premiere of Avengers Endgame. There you go. Uh, there it is. Oh, oh, thank God, thank God. I nearly, I nearly went a show without saying it. My God, uh, Ben, let's have a fact from you, young whippersnapper. My mercifully short fact that you'll probably all already know comes uh, <laughs> is from the it's f- quite hot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's what, it's <laughs> it's thirty three degrees in Dulwich. There's my fact. Um, <laughs> No, my fact is uh, based around the fact that today, as we record this, is the 10th anniversary of Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. Uh, In fact, if you go to empireonline.com, you can read Nick's original Scott Pilgrim feature from 10 years ago. It's a really interesting read. This is me filibustering, basically. (laughs) It's a a really interesting read. I'm waiting for your fact. (laughs) Wait a second. Uh, Is this the Edgar Wrightini? Are you going to... Is this your fact? It's not the Edgar Wrightini. Can it be using my own fact against me? That would be like (laughs) sif, sif sort of business 
um yeah it's it's a great piece especially as sort of a snapshot in where edgar was at that time like post hot fuzz and world's end wasn't really happening yet and he was getting all these mad offers from hollywood anyway one thing that was in that piece but i also read two minutes before this podcast on imdb trivia is that um so the the title sequence the opening title sequence in scott pilgrim is one of my favorite bits of the film it's amazing that Mm -hmm. that sort of shot where they're playing the band rehearsal and the the sofa sort of moves backwards and then you have all that scratchy colorful title sequences introducing all of the cast loads of little easter eggs of the numbers of the evil exes all that stuff is great and we wouldn't have that if it wasn't for quentin tarantino Uh, and that's because he screened it for a bunch of people obviously all of his schleb friends uh including qt and kevin smith and all sorts and tarantino was the one who said you need to have an opening credit sequence. Apparently it was just going to be a title card and that was it and it was going to move on. Uh, so it's thanks to Quentin Tarantino that we have one of my very favourite opening credit sequences. So It's quite pop fiction, isn't it? It is actually, yeah. And, and and much like that, you wouldn't have that fact without me writing it in my feature <laughs> 10 years ago. Therefore, so, if, so, if I somehow win with that, then it's also a victory for you. This is skullduggery. Yeah, and which order. of these people represents James today, and which one is the fourth chair? Well, I think we all know that the person who basically just ripped off a fact that they they read somewhere <laughs> is is the James. Ben oh, is the okay. James this week. It's uh, quite Nick a James in the fourth chair. Ben is the James. Uh, I'm the that Ben. Is, you're the Ben. Uh, you're <laughs> you're on a yacht in the south of France doing meth off someone's mandibles anyway i switched to meth now god it's really going downhill for me i mean that was quick cocaine yeah cocaine was a gateway drug (laughs) (laughs) this is not the first time i've accused you of doing coke on the empire podcast (laughs) you did it in front of a live audience last year as well and i feel like you have quite an open goal here like i don't think this is going to be difficult for you to (laughs) no but i have a i have a a fact that is bizarre so chris might just not like it but i don't care because it doesn't matter it's so bizarre it it amuses me i mean all right okay here here we go well actually i am it does matter if i like it yeah um, of course it matters if you like it you've made this whole thing so it matters if you like it so this is a story um about a a guy called elmer uh, mccurdy who made his debut in films 55 years after he died which i thought was quite cool what and then was almost on tv 11 years after that before they figured out what was going on. So uh, Elmer McCurdy was an outlaw, essentially, back in the day. He was born in 1880. He died in 1911. Um, But before he died, he he was this uh, robber on the run, and he was terrible at it. I just want to, like, this is relevant (laughs) to the film bit, but I just feel like we should know this. So he was, um, he did a train heist. Uh, He overestimated how much nitroglycerin he needed to use to open the safe he was trying to open. He actually destroyed the safe, which was supposed to be holding $4,000 worth of money, and uh, made off with only $450 in melted silver. he then heard that there was going to be this train carrying $400,000, so he was definitely going to go after that one. So after hiding out in a farmer's hay shed, he went after this train. He got on the wrong train and made off with $46, two jugs of whiskey, and a handful of personal items. Anyway, so it was after that that somebody put a bounty on his head and um, a, a bunch of oh, uh, sheriffs and, and bloodhounds and deputies literally tracked him down. Um, There was an hour-long gunfight and he was killed, right? So that's where our story actually begins. Because when he was killed, he obviously had no money on him because he was such a bad thief. And uh, he was passed on to the local funeral director, Joseph J. L. Johnson, 
who decided, look, he was going to figure out a way to get his money back for actually taking care of this body. So he put in more preservative than usual, a really arsenic-laced preservative that they sometimes used in those days um, that, that basically keeps the body from going, you know, gooey, like we all are mm, right now. Like a meal. Indeed. And um, so, and then nobody turned up to collect the body. So Joseph L. Johnson was still shit out of luck in terms of getting paid. So he decided to start charging people to see the corpse of this legendary outlaw, very much in quotation marks. So he right. started charging five cents a time. Word got around and these two guys turned up claiming to be McCurdy's long lost brothers. They were actually carnies. You know, Hel- I can just interrupt to say Helen's yeah. won this week, by the way. So <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 In quantity. In quantity. <laughs> So anyway, they were carnies. They basically put him on display for the next sort of 20 years. So he basically traveled around the country in all these traveling shows. At one point, he got wind damage and and the body started to to shrink because he was literally tied to the top of a truck and driven to Mount Rushmore. Not kidding. He was put in the lobby um, of cinemas in 19, I think, 30 to promote a film called Narcotics. And they, they said that this dried up shriveled body is what happens if you use drugs. So don't do drugs, kids. So he came close to stardom at that point, but he actually appears in the background of a film called She Freaks in 1966, (laughs) which was a remake of Todd Brown's Freaks. And he is there in the background. But nobody (laughs) knew he was a real corpse by that point because it had been so long and all this kind of like legend had kind of fallen by the wayside. So they just thought this was a gross looking prop. And he then got sold to another sort of, you know, one of these seaside attractions in California, which is where the $6 million man was shooting another 10 years later. So we're into the 1970s now. And a poor prop man tried it to move. It became Lee Majors. He, he didn't, thankfully. But basically, they were trying, he'd been painted orange and he'd been painted up like this weird cowboy figure. Trump. And they were, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then he became president. And they were trying to move him in the background because they were like, this this is really weird looking. We need to figure out what we, you know, can we even have this on screen? Is it too gross looking? And a prop man tried to pick him up. And his arm came off <laughs> and it was clear that it wasn't wax inside. It was, you know, bone and tissue. And so presumably the guy screamed and dropped him. I hope he screamed, he's got an arm off. <laughs> one story I read about this, and I'm not sure if this bit's true, but one story I read about this said that an ambulance was called for a case of severe dehydration. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case. It's not too late. We still but, got time um, to save him. Yeah, but basically they, they figured out that it was a real person. They did another autopsy on him. They figured out who he had been. And he was buried in 1976 after that. Under, I have to say, about two metres of concrete because they figured <laughs> otherwise out. people would... Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or people would come looking for souvenirs from this famous corpse. So that is the story of... Elmer How is this not like a McCurdy. Weekend at Bernie's style movie where the main character's dead? I know, right? I think it would be an amazing... I think you could make an incredible indie movie out of this story. I really do. He would give a genuinely better performance than Name Redacted. <laughs> do you think? <laughs> Josh Jamel. It would make a great song. I can hear that as like mm. a like a country and western song. The legend of... What was his name? Elmer McCurdy. Elmer McCurdy. That's crying out for a song. It's, it feels like it could be a Coen Brothers, like, if not a film, then yeah. maybe in Buster Scruggs too. There is a book about it by Mark Svenvold. Uh, I've only just heard about this, but I will be looking the book up in the future because that's just incredible. Helen, yeah. it, had, it had many compelling elements, that story. It did not have a beard. I was, I was uh, keeping notes, yeah. keeping track, Sorry. and there was no beard. I just want to put that on the record. 
That's it was exciting. Good. It was exciting. It was a roller coaster ride. Um, you know, uh, Helen took you took the constructive criticism of last week's fact, which was ultra dull uh, on oh my board. And my last you come fact back had with dogs. A- <laughs> How dare you! And you come back with a with an absolute belter. So Nick's had Harrison Ford in a beard. Ben's, I don't even remember what Ben's was. And <laughs> yours was very, very good. So well done. This week's winner is Helen O'Hara. Well done, Helen O'Hara. <sighs> well done, Helen. Next time I'm going to spend four minutes on it. <laughs> All four minutes. Not four minutes. I'll mm-hmm. never win again. Oh, yeah. Jeez. Three's my limit. I, I, I'm annoyed because I blew my I blew an, a legitimately good one by tweeting about it a few days ago. And, uh, Which was? Uh, it was the one about Robert Town um, putting his dog's name on the credit for Greystoke and then oh, that, that dog getting nominated for an Oscar. Mm. That was good. I mean, it still wasn't as good as yours. All right. Well, good facts. Good facts, I have to say. Here's another good fact for you. Speaking of Scott Pilgrim's 10th anniversary, we have a spoiler special, retro spoiler special podcast to celebrate that anniversary and that will be up next week and that involves a one hour plus. Yes, we haven't recorded our half of it yet. Uh, that involves a one hour plus uh, interview I did with Edgar Wright and and is really, really interesting. So uh, if you don't already subscribe to our spoiler special channel, then do so, because quite frankly, guys, they're going to come at you at a rate of knots. Hamilton, Pitch Black, Flash Gordon, Host, Project Power, spoiler specials, up the wazoo. So go to my pinned tweet at Chris Hewitt on Twitter for details of how to subscribe or just go to glow.fm forward slash empire film and just a few quid a month will get you access to over 125 incredible spoiler specials. Anyway, that was the film fact section, which this week I forgot to give it a name. This week was called someone sent me Scott a question. Scott Pilgrim versus the fact. Scott Pilgrim versus the fact. Thanks, Nick. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Scott Pilgrim versus the facts. Um, there we go. I like it. Uh, and now let's move on to our listener question this week, which comes from at C underscore Quigley on Twitter. And this one feels quite topical. Given Kamala Harris's pick this week as the US Democratic vice presidential nominee, who are the best? Well, okay. The question was, who are the best presidents and vice presidents in film? But we've done presidents a couple of times, I'm sure, on the podcast. So I'm striking off the record and we're focusing on vice presidents. Who are the best or worst vice presidents in film? Can I just, can I just start by throwing a big dog into the, into the ring? This is, this, is an actor, this is an actor who has not only played a vice president, but has taken a vice president hostage at an ice hockey game. Oh my God. Do you know who I'm talking about? Well, that's got to be Powers Booth. Yes, it is Powers Booth. Uh, sudden death. When was, he a, when was he a vice president? 24, so technically a TV show. Ah, Most actors, okay. to be fair, have played a vice president in 24 at some point. They, they, <laughs> the, the presidents and was- vice presidents get killed very quickly in that show. There was quite a big turnover. In fact, this is one of the interesting things when I was uh, trying to, you know, do some research into this. That TV is filled with vice presidents. You know, you you can you throw a rock at a TV. You shouldn't do that, by the way. But if you throw a rock at a TV, you'll hit a show with a vice president. And there's a show called Veep. Veep. <laughs> yeah. Veep. Twenty Four, The West Wing, um, Designated Survivor, Scandal had loads of them. Um, isn't it was Commander in Chief? That's another one. Isn't there a show called Madam Secretary, Madam President? Madam like Secretary, that? yeah, it's fantastic. I love it. I mean, there's just vice presidents all over the shop. But weirdly enough, on the big screen, I think vice presidents are very 
uh, underused, I would say. And in my research, I'm not going to give names here now. I want to throw it open to you guys. But in my research, I have found that vice presidents, if you're a vice president in a movie, it's usually for one of two reasons. You are at some Squirly. point going to assume the presidency or you are the big bad guy behind it all. I, I gave it some thought. I broke it down into three different categories of, of movie vice president. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. There are the schemey veeps, there's the cannon mm-hmm. fodder, fodder veeps, and there's the virtuous <laughs> veeps, who are like, there's only a few virtuous ones. Weirdly, one of the virtuous yeah. ones is played by Ben Kingsley, who you think would definitely be schemey in Dave. Yeah. Um, yeah. But they, they're normally either getting blown up, because you can blow up a vice president and it doesn't have too much, you know, it's fine. It's <laughs> oh, fine. Easy, yeah. In a movie. Um, just on behalf of the US Secret Service, I'd like to make clear that you cannot in a movie. blow up in a, a movie. vice president and red have it flag, not matter. Red flag, red flag. This is true. But, you know, like the vice president in Independence Day is so insignificant that not only is he or she, we, never, we, don't, we don't know, they're never named, but they're killed off screen. Like they just come in and go, yeah, bad news, guys. The, I'm afraid the vice president and the, and the entire Joint Chiefs of Staff have all been killed. Oh, yeah, they went to NORAD, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, oh. those fucking idiots. Egypt. I mean, in fairness, it looks like a big mountain. You would have thought they'd be fine. Um, we don't know that Bill Pullman isn't a schemey president, though, that he hasn't uh, worked in tandem with the aliens in order to bump no, no, off the, the vice it's president. There's only ever one schemey one out of the two of them, because the reason that Ben Kingsley is good in Dave is because mm. the original Dave is such a dickhead. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the only mm. reason he can have a good vice president. Unlike reality, there's a maximum amount of shitness that they can have. Yeah. I think my favourite, <laughs> my favourite schemey veep is probably Vice President Rodriguez, played by Miguel oh, Ferrer. Yes, I had to look yes. all of this up uh, in Iron Man Three. <laughs> um, although he's a good one, he's he's schemey as hell. He's the sort of one of the villains, but he has a kind of backstory, and and he's got a, a daughter who's um, you know handicapped and so he's got a good reason why he's mm. doing what he's doing sort of oh for high treason nick is that what you think oh, <laughs> God. he still gets blown but up yes. i believe <laughs> he just gets arrested oh he doesn't get blown up no he uh, he gets a, he gets arrested can you name the president though ellis isn't it president ellis correct president matthew ellis played by william sadler death <laughs> it's a metaphor yeah <laughs> was that your favorite helen um, he probably is actually in terms of the big screen, um, but I was kind of trying to think uh, through. The, the other one that came to mind is actually American Psycho because they're all vice presidents mm. in American Psycho. But the <laughs> best, the best vice president, obviously in that one, is Paul Allen um, and not Patrick Bateman because that's why Patrick Bateman hates him so much. So it's actually Jared Leto. I've got a couple more. Yeah, uh, obviously uh, Christian Bale is Dick Cheney. Oh, boo. But yes. I didn't consider real life uh, VPs, but yeah, absolutely. Great choice. Yeah. I mean, that, who's that the film VP is in Lincoln? Probably, probably Powers Booth. I'd put money on it. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. You're right. You're probably um, right. Uh, and, and the other one is uh, in a comedy, uh, Idiocracy, Dax Shepard plays Frita Pendejo, who is a complete <laughs> moron. He went to law school in Costco. Um, he isn't vice president to President Dwayne Elizondo Mountain Dew Herbert Camacho, but he does take over from him. And uh, he's just a complete idiot. And, yes. and I love that film. I think he, yeah, he has the famous line, I can't believe you like money too. We should hang out. And so, I mean, probably smarter than the actual, actual Veep at the moment, but politics. Certainly smarter than the actual president at the moment. Uh, there's, I was reading that. I haven't seen Idiocracy in years. And I was reading today so a little bit about that character. And it goes, so at the end of the, um, at the end of the film, Luke Wilson becomes the president. And so he marries Maya Rudolph's character and they have Maya Rudolph who played uh, Kamala Harris on SNL. It's all coming full circle. Oh, full circle. Wow. 
So um, he, uh, they father three of the world's smartest children because if you don't know idiocracy, it takes place in a in a future where everyone is is dumb as rocks. Uh, and Dax Shepard's Frito Pendejo uh, fathers thirty two of the world's stupidest children. <laughs> it's like I've just remembered one. Oh, Al Gore in an inconvenient truth. Oh, 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 oh mm. that's pretty good. PowerPoint. That's pretty good. What did he ever go Project on to? PowerPoint. <laughs> so they should have called that. Oh, going close in Air Force One. Um, I can't yes. remember anything she does in it, but I'm sure she's very good. <laughs> is she? She's not on the plane, is she? She's she's no, on she's the ground. Not. She's. I think it's probably quite a thankless, thankless part. Yeah. Well, mm. She's on the ground. Yeah. I have basically nothing for this. I I got really <laughs> stuck. I really got really stuck on Vice, and I was like, I can't say Dick Cheney for best movie vice president. Uh, that's that's the whole point of the film. He was the worst. Yeah. And then I thought I had a really good get out. I was like, oh, of course. Last year, long shot, Charlize Theron. She's not vice president. She's secretary, no, she's of, secretary state. of state. Mm. What's the it's difference? A lot of really good- what does secretary of state do? It's like foreign minister. Uh, okay, but don't worry, guys, because vice president isn't a real job anyway. <laughs> All right, London <laughs> Hamilton. That was London <laughs> Hamilton reference, there, guys. I wasn't disparaging the uh, the storied office of vice president. I've got a couple just to to bring this home. So Frito Pendeo is a good comedy vice president, as is, and this made me want to revisit the movie because I found a couple of clips of this on YouTube and it tickled me immensely. Bernie Mac as Mitch Gilliam. Chris Rock's brother and head of state, which is about Chris Rock becoming president. And he uh, drafts in his brother, who is a bell bondsman, Mitch Gilliam, to be his VP. And it's Bernie Mac going full Bernie Mac. But um, if you're talking about scheming presidents and virtuous feeps, schemy feeps and virtuous feeps, what was the other one, Nick? There was a, there was a third category? Oh, uh, cannon fodder. Cannon fodder feet. Well, my friends, I have the franchise for you. It is the dot, dot, dot has fallen franchise, which has all three categories absolutely, completely and utterly sorted for your viewing pleasure. Uh, so the first movie, Olympus Has Fallen, has a cannon fodder feep who is so insignificant I don't even know his name or who plays him. Uh, I looked him up the... and I don't remember it. I looked it up <laughs> yeah, five minutes instantly. ago. It's gone. Sorry. Instantly forgot. I'm sure he's a wonderful movie. Actor. Second movie, London Has Fallen. Morgan Freeman is the, mm. now the vice president. Virtuous. And he is your virtuous feep. Mm. And then in arguably the best of the trilogy, Angel <laughs> Has Fallen. Dumb? I mean, it's, you know, it's very tight, isn't it? Obviously, when you're, when you're dealing with quality this high, uh, there's a cigarette paper's width between all three movies, obviously. But in Angel Has Fallen, uh, Morgan has ascended to the presidency, uh, leaving... <laughs> With the vice president played by Tim Blake Nelson. Now, folks, <laughs> if I were to tell you that it turns out that Tim Blake Nelson is the <laughs> evil scheming mastermind behind the attempt to kill Morgan Freeman and frame Jerry Butler for his murder oh, in this movie, <laughs> you wouldn't believe it, would I'd you? No, well, I mean, that just doesn't track with everything I know. When you cast against type like that, it's really hard to follow. <laughs> it, it gives me hope that in this franchise, the greatest character will eventually become vice president. And I'm talking about Colin Salmon's Kevin Hazard, who, um, the bet my favorite named character in the world. Uh, Kevin Hazard has to come back. He has to become Veep in the fourth one. He can't do it, can he? Because he's British. He'll find a way. <laughs> I mean, nothing makes nothing sense. Nothing stops like, Kevin Hazard. Yeah, I remember when we got a first look image for uh, for the magazine for uh, London Has Fallen. It was Jared Butler in the London Underground, and there was a giant map behind him that just it was it was 
the Northern Line or something, and it made no sense. Like the North, <laughs> they hadn't checked like what stations are on the line, and they were all wrong and out of order. And it was it was great. So I don't know if if the I don't know if accuracy is necessary there. Watchword. Of course not. Of course not. But if you watch that movie, that, that series of movies, it's not just the, the story of Mike Banning. It's a story of Alan Trumbull as he rises from, you know, Morgan Freeman's character, as he, as he rises from, you know, bloke in background in first movie to becoming president in background in the third movie. It's absolutely glorious stuff. Um, well done. Well done, Morgan Freeman, who has now played the president several times and uh, therefore I think should be the actual president. Yep, sure. We haven't even mentioned Joan Allen in The Contender. She's not technically vice president. Oh my God, she's my favourite as well. Oh, and that's just come back (laughs) onto some kind of, that's just come back onto some kind of streaming, hasn't it? I've got the Funko Pop. I mean, for most of that film, like, she's not vice president, is is she? Yes. No, she's not. She's not. She's not even until the end. Yeah, yeah, she's being if, you know, confirmed. So yeah. technically, we're okay. Uh, but she is she's amazing. Not vice president. That's the kind of story that makes me want to have a daughter and then sit down and tell her to watch that film. It's like that's what you're going for doing. Yay! And then you also show her the Has Fallen trilogy. Naturally, so chock full of great female role models. You know, it's it's just so. There's, and don't forget. Um, who who amongst us would 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 not have um on their minds uh it's it's the the female characters in that franchise are so poorly served that they actually just replaced Jerry Butler's wife for the third yes. one and hope no one noticed and probably no one did um so it was Rada Mitchell for, I think for the first one I'm not even sure she's in the second one she may be I can't remember um and then suddenly it's Piper Parabo and it's like okay yeah fine and they don't even do the thing they did in soap operas on the TV and go the role of Mike Banning's wife will now be played by Piper Parabo 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 anyway if you want to have your question read out on the Empire podcast and treat it with the respect it deserves as at C underscore quickly found out to her cost. You can get in touch with us via one method, one method only right now, and that is Twitter. Uh, so just tweet me at Chris Hewitt, slide into my DMs, or wait for me to, as I did this week, to issue a request on Twitter for questions. And C underscore quickly's leapt to the front of the queue. So thank you very much indeed for that. Hey everyone, Chris jumping in here very, very quickly for a bit that was recorded separately to this week's podcast because it is time now for this week's first guest. And I should say up front, I want to say up front, that this is also going to be the start of something new that I'm trying on the Empire podcast. Basically, we do two kinds of interviews for the show. We do ones that are 15 to 20 minutes long, they're fairly tightly regimented, and then there are ones that are more organic, more conversational, and crucially, longer. They're in the 30, 35, 40, 45 minute, and sometimes even beyond camp. Both of the interviews this week, Josh Lucas and the Russo brothers, fall into that latter category. But I'm also acutely aware that in lockdown especially, The show is routinely running over the two-hour mark, and I'm trying to stop that from happening without losing any of our segments, even, yes, the new fact section. So, here is my solution. From now on, where the interview is in the 15-20 to minute camp, you will hear most of, if not all of it. And where the interview is in the longer category, 
I'm going to bring you either the first 15 minutes or so or selected highlights. And then I'll put up the interview in full or close to as its own special over the weekend. Which brings me, in a roundabout way, to our first guest, the wonderful Josh Lucas. You'll have seen him in films like Session 9, Sweet Home, Alabama, Hulk, Poseidon, A Beautiful Mind, The Lincoln Lawyer, J. Edgar, and Le Mans 66. And now he reteams with his Sweet Home, Alabama director, Andy Tennant, on the secret Dare to Dream, a romantic drama based on the best-selling self-help book by Rhonda Byrne. It's out now on premium video on demand if you want to rent it this weekend. Now, if anyone follows me on Twitter, first of all, apologies. But secondly, you'll know that I mentioned earlier in the week having conducted an interview with an actor who rapidly became my new favourite person because not only had he his own microphone, which, by the way, I heartily recommend to any actors slash directors slash writers slash publicists out there. We're going to be in lockdown for a while, folks. Get your own microphones. It really does help. Anyway, this actor, after a couple of minutes on Zoom, was worried that the sound quality wasn't good enough for us, which it wasn't, so he asked to move to a better platform. So we headed over to Squadcast, and that actor was, I can confirm, Josh Lucas. And we had a very fun and candid chat about how he's faring in lockdown, about how Ang Lee has helped him with his career in surprising ways, even long after doing Hulk his attraction to the principles of The Secret, and, really candidly, his feelings about the period of time when he shot for big-screen movie superstardom with the likes of Stealth and Poseidon, only to have things go not so well. So, you're about to hear the selected highlights from the interview for the full 35 minutes or so, including much discussion of Hulk keeping peeled over the weekend. Right, here's Josh Lucas. Enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast in lockdown, of course, by the star of The Secret Dare to Dream, Mr. Josh Lucas. How are you, sir? Uh, Chris, I'm excellent and happy to be here with your your Great Empire Magazine podcast. <laughs> so I know it well. <laughs> yeah. I'll do a quiz later on. You can <laughs> Great. <laughs> see how it goes. I'll uh, get it where are all you in- wrong. <laughs> so would I. So would I. Uh, where are you in the world at the moment? Because I know that you were in Indonesia. I was, yeah. We came back. Um, we definitely evacuated, like a lot of people. Right, it was the day that Tom Hanks got coronavirus, which seems to be seminal moment in world history. <laughs> yes, yes. That Tom was Hanks has coronavirus. Went. It's serious. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. It doesn't matter that I'd been speaking to my emergency room father, who was working in a COVID unit. He was like, "You need to get out of there right now." Um, oh my god! I had ignored that, but when Tom Hanks had coronavirus, I was gone. Uh, we we. <laughs> We took a flight out the next night um, and happened to be one of the last flights out of Bali and then flew into Australia um, and were the last plane out of Australia, at least, you know, at that point. But um, for, before they shut it all down and it was pretty oh surreal, God. as everyone knows, traveling from Asia <laughs> during the middle of it. Um, I, I have to say it was a wild ride. Yeah. But I'm actually on a small island in uh, Washington state, um, the Pacific Northwest called Vashon Island. And I had a pretty amazing moment this morning. Truly. I woke up to the sound of like, and I looked outside my window and there were orcas going by killer whales. I could send you, I could send you a video this morning. It was pretty amazing. So we are, we are in a, a hellishly wonderful coronavirus lockdown. <laughs> 
This is tremendous. Uh, I'm surprised by when you said orcas. I, I've, I thought you were going to say, I hope my window and Tom Hanks was there. <laughs> it's okay. It's over. It's all no, over. Free Willy, literally. <laughs> That's yeah. amazing. But how, apart from that, how is lockdown life treating you? Are you okay? Have you been healthy? You've been staying sane? That's important. You know, I, I, I sent someone a text like five weeks ago about where, I, what the state, I was like, you know, I'm drinking too much. I've gained weight. I'm, <laughs> I've slowly like letting myself go. Um, and then she asked me, you know, yesterday and I sent her the exact same text from five <laughs> weeks ago and it didn't change one second or one ounce. I, you know, I, I am amazed. I will, I will tell people like, what did you do today? I'll be like, I did press all day long. And the reality was I did 20. 20 minutes of the empire podcast, you know, so like my entire day and I'll feel like I am I'm completely justified by the amount of work that I have done for the entire day because I had something to do. Um, that's the big difference. I, I can tell you, uh, there's not a, a most days go by where I don't have a single thing to do. Um, <laughs> oh my and God. I, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a, I must admit I'm, I'm sadly not somebody who is a crazy self starter from a creative standpoint. I'm not someone who's home writing, you know, the great American novel or the great American mm. screenplay. I, mm. I actually get, um, you know, sort of angry and, and jealous about those people. <laughs> Cause I'm not <laughs> one of them. Um, have you been working at least on the Great American Tweet, the Great American Instagram post? I, I have spent some time doing that. I, uh, I I saw that Reese Witherspoon had done this thing the other day of, of the calendar challenge of the year, of photographs of the year. And so I spent a good half a day finding photographs of myself all from the movie Hulk, all, in different, <laughs> different, all from different phases of, 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 of disrepair as I was slowly getting more and more beaten up by the Hulk. And I decided that it was the best thing I'd done in a long time <laughs> um, is the most work I've had in months. <laughs> that is amazing. That is amazing. Cause I was, I was, I was going to ask about that actually, because, you know, I was trying to think about what films you could, you could have gone for because you get beaten up in quite a lot of your films. <laughs> it has to be said, but uh, I like, I love that you zeroed in specifically on Hulk. Yeah, no. I actually sent it to Ang Lee because I haven't spoken to him uh, in a very long time. You know, my last not run in with Ang was I loved working with that man. I, I truly thought he was not just brilliant, but I, I found him to be just a soulful, deeply, you know, gentle, truly possibly even genius creative force. Yeah. Um, and I don't, that's not a word I use. I think that word's thrown around all the time, but that guy's a different story. Um, and I think Hulk was a very hard experience for him in, in many, many ways. Um, but I really loved working with him and working with him on that film in particular. And then mm. um, we years later, a couple of years later, I was doing The Glass Menagerie on, on Broadway. And mm -hmm. um, I walked backstage after, you know, maybe the second week of performances. Um, and I walked backstage and Ang comes right up to me and was like, what are you doing? And I was like, what do you mean? And in his kind of beautiful broken English, um, he says, well, you're just not doing anything like what I would direct you to do or that I think you should naturally be doing. <laughs> and I was like, you know, Ang, I gave him a big hug and said, I agree. And I changed my performance entirely the next day. <laughs> Truly, genuinely, it's a true story. I, I uh, wow. yeah, because I so respected his point of view and I knew that 
at least that particular um, production had gotten kind of off the rails. Um, okay. And okay. Uh, I, I had gone down the wrong path, whether it's, you know, my fault or directorially or a mix of all of it or stylistically, there were so many things going on. Um, but that's the last time I saw him. So I, I sent him my Instagram calendar and uh, I heard right back from him that he said it warmed his heart. So it made my day. <laughs> So it was an, an effective week of work. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. Which, in a, in a weird way, Josh, uh, kind of brings us on to the secret because that's a little bit of uh, that's that's a little bit of what happens in the movie as well. That people, sure. um, you know, they 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 wish for something. It's, it's based on a, the the very famous self help book. Uh, so in a weird way, you were practicing it even before the secret came your way. <laughs> you wished for Ang Lee to appear and turn your performance sure. in one direction, and and lo and behold, he did. You know, I, look, I to to I believe in. I wouldn't say yeah. I, I mean, I do. I believe in the secret. What I believe in is I believe in the power of of positive thinking. I believe the, in the power of manifestation. I, you know, you can do it in so many ways. I, I think it can mm. come from um, how you wake up and think about what you want to happen that day. You know, the idea of vision boards and the things that come directly from that movie, or it can come through prayer. It can come through meditation. It can come through you know any. There's so many different ways to access. Um, I think what the the secret talks about but you know i go back to to me the secret really is interesting because it's talking about some of the great thinkers like socrates and einstein and and they're mm. they're delve into the power of of the human mind really um i go to victor frankl's you know mind-blowing book man's search for meaning and you know looking for um a, a spark of positivity or hopefulness inside the Holocaust, you know, being inside a concentration mm. camp. Mm. And, you know, I look for, and particularly right now, I would say we are in times where it is harder than ever to do. Um, and it probably is the, the most important work that, you know, we can do. And I, I definitely do it. You know, one of the things I've done to go to the Ang Lee of it all um, is that in my career, at least there have been times where I have been clearly focused on what I wanted. And I've been very good about knowing what that was and, and, and asking for it. Meaning like I would write director's letters. I, I, I wrote Clint Eastwood a letter and said, I'll, I'll be an extra in your movie. Um, and ended up working with him, not necessarily mm. directly because of that, but I, I don't know the direct relationship to it. I don't you know, know if mm. Clint Eastwood even got that letter, but I, I've done the same thing with Woody Allen and never worked with Woody Allen. <laughs> so, um, there's a lot of directors I've done that with. Um, and one of the things that I would say is hard right now for me, um, and I think for very, very many people, is a question that comes straight out of the secret is how can you ask for what you want if you don't know what it is? And I think it's very difficult right now to know what what you want because the limitations, for example, in my career right now are there is no work. So how do you, mm. you know, how do mm. you say, well, it, so there's a, a weird, I would say, it's not a limitation within the secret, but you have to take the parameters of what's happening within your world into into view as you ask for what you want. So as much mm -hmm. as I would love to say, I want to go back to work with Ang Lee on a movie tomorrow, um, you know, that's not really actually happening right now. <laughs> so, so next year, could, next year. I could make an Instagram post and reach out to the guy and say that <laughs> that was my work with Ang Lee for the week. <laughs> 
<laughs> it all counts. It all counts. There's a there's a, a line in the film as well that uh, Bray, he says, I believe in a possibility that whatever happens, even the bad stuff can lead to better things. And you've kind of touched upon that as well. You've had some you know setbacks in your personal life and, and your career over the, over the years as well. And so when things like that happen, do you follow that mantra? Do you, do you believe that this can lead to the good stuff, can lead to the better stuff? You know, I have no doubt that that it can, and I have no doubt that it's really based on how you not trick your mind, but how you how you um, feed your mind. I had this real intense conversation with my son the other day because he was, you know, he's struggling. He's an eight year old boy, and his whole life is friends, mm-hmm. right? And suddenly he's not allowed to see his friends, and everything's changed so dramatically for him. And he's, you know, really on a kind of lockdown and. We got to go. We our little COVID bubble includes his cousins, so okay. we went. And, we went and spent a couple hours with his cousins, and and he was very angry that as we left, um, we couldn't just stay. And I said, "Well, you know, man, you have a choice of being angry about the fact that you don't get what you want, in or, you know, in a sense, and it's not. It's a very brave thing to say, or you are grateful for the fact that you got this period of time today with your cousins." And it just sort of struck me as I said it because to go to my career i think there are some heavy losses that i've taken you know huge box office failures or movies i haven't gotten that i've so desperately wanted or even been told i was going to get that then i didn't get and i look back at those things and i can tell you they the the pain of them sometimes lasted a long time but as i look back on them i now am able to understand why it went that way and and not just look again i say I, I don't want to be Pollyanna, Pollyannish about this. I, I believe that, you know, I can look back on those things and say, I am in a better place and, and would make different choices. That's a big part of it. Like so much of my life, I've, I've, I feel as if I follow my instincts, I'm, I usually do pretty good. And the big times mm. in my life where I didn't is when things went wrong. Um, and mm. I, you know, more and more, I'm somebody who I think, searches for what my true instincts are and Mm. and to go to something even bigger what my true altruistic instincts are for myself my son you know why am i doing the things i'm doing is it for for you know my own personal gain and i can say Mm -hmm. the big career choices i've made that have gone wrong have been when they were very individual choices that you know this is going to make me a big movie star and make a lot of money and things that just it it, it always went wrong (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> was that something that, that you were driving yourself? Was that were those, were those choices? I mean, for example, if we want to say st- Stealth and Poseidon, for example, are perhaps two big movies that didn't those, quite work out. Those are the, the two that are, I absolutely reference in my head as well. Um, mm. And in both cases, I was um, not just reluctant. I was uh, in both cases, you know, and I'm not blaming anybody. I was talked into both of those movies um, and highly reluctant. And what I did, what I will take complete credit for was that I chose to be talked out of following my own instincts, um, mm. you know, mm. and I, I remember one in particular where the, you know, head of Warner brothers called me, um, and whether it was just a brilliant manipulation, but I, I, he appeared to be crying on the phone (laughs) and I, I, you know, empathetically was like, okay, (laughs) you know, like, and, and, and the screenwriter who was a friend sent me an incredible, um, case of wine, these weird kind of perfect manipulations that, that worked. Uh, and you know, I, I look back on that, it's a very, very hard time. And, um, 
and that I knew going into it, there were certain elements that were not in place. And, you know, I'm, I'm mm. aware that I didn't follow my instincts, you know, and I, 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 mm. I got talked into it. It's no one's fault that they talked me into it, but definitely. Yeah. What's next for you? I know in the next couple of weeks over here in the UK, you've got She Dies Tomorrow, the Amy mm. Simetz film. Uh, that's a special film, actually. It's a really cool film. Um, an amazing film because we shot it for probably the price of the catering budget on The Secret, which was nothing, not even the catering budget, <laughs> the, the craft. I mean, and The Secret's a small movie, too. Believe me, yeah. it's not some big movie. Um, I actually remember, I need to go to the Hulk again. I remember walking on set on the Hulk and they had a sushi bar in, <laughs> at craft service every day. <laughs> you could walk up at any moment on the Hulk set, go to craft service, and there was a sushi chef waiting to make you sushi. So, um <laughs> Seriously, That's those it. are the, the heady days of, of Hollywood blockbusters. Um, yeah. Man, I don't know what's next. I really don't. I, you know, I, I, I definitely have um, a serious desire to get back to work. Um, and mm. you know, I, I'm someone who loves doing stage work as well. And you know, mm. I know you guys have started to open up theaters over there, but you know, I've heard some talk of here summer twenty one or even late. 20 or early 22 before Broadway is going to open back up. But, um, so man, I'm trying to keep myself busy. I, I, I got a piece of property and I'm out digging in the dirt every time I can. And that's kind of, you know, it's, it's my own personal, <laughs> it's my own, <laughs> my own gardening project, basically. See how far you can dig. Yeah. <laughs> so just, just, just for are fun. you going to be, <laughs> precisely, precisely. I have no reason to dig this hole, but I have nothing else to do today. So uh, and I'm going to make my son, I'm going to make my son do it with with me to keep him off his iPad. Like the other day, someone said, what do you do? What are you doing with your day? And I said, I'm now in keep my son off his iPad camp. That's my, that, that, I am the, 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 the camp leader director of keep my son off his iPad camp. It's been a pleasure, sir. Chris, thanks a lot, man. I, uh, I, I, I dig what you do. I'll talk to you soon. And that was Josh Lucas, or the selected highlights of The Secret Dare to Dream is available to rent now pretty much wherever you get your premium video on demand. And the full Josh Lucas interview will be up this weekend. Right, now I return you to our regularly scheduled podcast programming. Okay, so that was Josh Lucas, and now it is time to talk movie news. What has been happening uh, this week in the world of cinema? Oh, I went to see a film, by the way, guys. Wow, what would you see? My wife and I, we went to see Jojo Rabbit at our local Emporium. And uh, very charmed we were indeed. And very safe we felt also. Uh, And tickets went on sale this week, by the way, uh, for Tenet. Which now does seem, and we've never been closer as far as I can tell, we've never been closer to actually coming out. It's just over... 10 days away at this point. It hasn't been pushed back as things stand. August 26th in the UK. Tickets have gone on sale. This feels real. It feels like it's about to happen. Do you do you believe that we will see Tenet in cinema soon? I, I do. I think in the, in the wake of things like Unhinged and um, there's been a, like a smattering over the last few weeks of proper cinema releases. American Pickle as well. Um, mm-hmm. my, my local cinema has been open for the last three, four weeks now. So it does it does feel real that Tenet could actually come out in, in two weeks' time. And also, I, if everything goes to plan, which, I mean, who knows if it will, but New Mutants should be 
around the corner as well. At last, New Mutants might finally be coming out. Don't, I mean, just knock on wood right then. Come on. I mean, I, I'm not betting on, I don't know, a meteor shooting out of the sky and destroying all cinemas on the day that New Mutants is supposed to come out or some kind of, something's got to happen uh, around that film. man. I think I feel ready to go back to the cinema now. I haven't been back yet since my local reopened, uh, but I think I think Tenet would draw me back. I feel at a level now that I can go and do that. What about you guys? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, I went to an American Pickle last week, which was just delightful. So good to be back in a cinema. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I'm excited. Did you remember what to do? Well, obviously I sat with my back to the screen initially, um, cause that seems, that's how it works. yeah, I thought that was how it worked, but I guess not. I was told to, I should probably mm. turn around and indeed the experience was better at that point. <laughs> yeah. I thought the French kissing the staff was a new wrinkle. I was, I didn't quite, I didn't quite expect that, you know, where they insist upon kissing you with tongues. Um, they told me it was a COVID test, so I, I just went with it. But did, did anyone else get that? Was that just Chris? That you should maybe me? go to a different different cinema. <laughs> next time. Do, does your and cinema have big neon flashing X's out of the front of it? <laughs> <laughs> did have quite a sticky floor. Oh, is this part of the whole four D? Is it four D X? I got invited to an, a screening of Inception that where they blast uh, water and air into your face, and I don't <laughs> yes. know if I don't know if that's what I want. Do, uh, right now, I, oh, they're they're immense no. fun. They're really stupid, Are but they? they're so fun. Yeah, you know, I just I just worry with Inception. There's that bit where the chair tips over, and I think that would be stressful if they do that to you. It it doesn't tip far enough to doesn't throw tip you into away. a bathtub. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> when the when the hotel room spins around, does the whole cinema spin on a three hundred and sixty well, degree axis? Yeah, the, the hotel obviously the, the whole cinema spins, but like they strap you in, so it's fine. When he when he descends into a dream world, do, does that happen as well? Like, do you do you get lowered into a into <laughs> yes. subco- someone's subconscious? Someone knocks you out and connects some cables to you, and then, <laughs> yeah. and then charges you twenty quid for it. And everyone oh, in the screening room gets incepted. Everyone comes out with mm. a different idea of something that's going to change the yeah, world. Yeah, th- there is no screen in the room you're just incepted inceptamondo they just give you a pillow and it's like there you go interactive screening um yeah i'm gonna go see inception on the weekend actually at uh, pitch house i'm nice. very excited i do like an inception <laughs> do, how do we like a nice inception oh do you um yeah I'm, I'm gonna go see inception as well but i did not do the 4dx thing because uh, i've already done 4dx once and that was for end game i went with with you helen mm-hmm. uh last year and frankly never again <laughs> Just, <laughs> no, thanks. no thank you i really enjoyed this film but i'm struggling to remember why because i'm being buffeted about every five the seconds rats, even during like, fucking dialogue you. scenes <laughs> <laughs> yes. Anyway, speaking of really, really fun and cool things that are great to talk about, I'm sure you guys are going to be excited to talk about this. MacGruber is becoming a series. I'm excited. Oh. Are you excited? There's a link here. There's a link here with what we were just talking about because Christopher Nolan is a massive MacGruber fan, which is one of my favorite facts. <laughs> really? Did you guys know this? Is this like Terence Malick being a massive Zoolander fan? It's. I mean, Nolan has talked about it, but um, uh, the, the makers of MacGruber basically said their original plan, uh, they were talking about doing a MacGruber 2, and they wanted to have it as a film directed by Christopher Nolan at the beginning of the film, and uh, then at the end it's like, just kidding. <laughs> but they actually, I, I believe they went to him and asked, and he was up for it, and he's a big fan of uh, the series. But yeah, it's a TV show instead of a sequel now. So he will be watching MacGruber. Will Forte is back as MacGruber. Um, the Chris Nolan thing reminds me of the time. Do you remember, I think it was a few years ago, we asked a bunch of directors to send us their favourite films of mm-hmm. Empire's Lifetime. And uh, Paul Greengrass put Step Brothers in his top 10. Yeah. 
I'm ge- I'm genuinely surprised that Christopher Nolan likes any comedy, ever. That's a, yeah, <laughs> especially MacGruber, which is a film where Val Kilmer plays a villain called Dieter von Kunf. <laughs> Isn't it Kunf <laughs> like his name? <laughs> and people are just yes. yelling Kunf at each other. <laughs> And, um, Let's go pound some cunt just, is one yeah, of the, the lines of that cunt. movie. But also the sex scene in the graveyard. I cannot imagine Christopher Nolan watching that. Like I can't. My brain, can't, my brain can better take no, in the end of Inception yeah, rather that than that. It just possible. No. No. Yes. Very very excited about that coming back. Um, anyone excited about anything that happened in the week? Any any good stuff? Well, I don't know how exciting it is, but but this third Tron film is apparently happening with some kind of interesting, strange, but I guess interesting choices of people involved. So uh, the director who has been attached to the new Tron film is Garth Davis, the Australian filmmaker who made uh, Lion, the Dev Patel film, and Mary Magdalene was his last film. He does like sort of emotional... Per- Give me the Jesus yeah, guy. Exactly. Well, apparently, because it <laughs> well, seems... Well, in more ways than one, because yeah. Jared Leto Tron. too, right? Yeah. And also, Tron, there's a sort of, is there a messianic sort of thing going on in Tron as well? Wow. I mean, Vaguely. almost certainly. Who, who could tell? I, I feel like I feel like you don't hire Jared Leto if there isn't some kind of messianic mm. thing going on in your movie. So, I mean, not late stage Jared Leto. Obviously, you know, 19, you know, nineteen nineties Jared Leto, whole different ballgame. Although he but, has the Jesus hair now. now, he has the big, long, flowing you know, Jesus hair these it. days. Yeah, apparently Garth Davis sort of fought for that job. He 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 like apparently really aggressively went after that that directing gig. So, who knows? Maybe he's a he's a big fan. While he's been doing his sort of. Um, yeah, emotional adoption reunion dramas and and Jesus movies. In the back of his mind, he's always like, "I just want to go to Flynn's arcade." Boot I've, up had, Tron. I've had the uh, Tron Legacy Blu-ray edging closer and closer to my Blu-ray player because I haven't seen it since it mm. came out. Mm. And, but I just recently, I don't know, I just get in this urge to rewatch it, and then I keep remembering there's like 20 minutes where Jeff Bridges meditates in the middle, and I'm not sure <laughs> I want to. I mean, honestly, um, that bit sounds more fun than most of the rest of it. Like, I, I don't yeah. remember it being any fun at all. It's got some good. Chases, I think. I guess isn't it? it's got some it good got design. It's got good and music. Some good music. Yeah. Some good meditation. Yeah, soundtrack's good. Soundtrack's good. I just, I, I don't know. Th- this film really has to work on its own merits. Like, I don't feel like there's any particular weight in that franchise, or, or you know, sort of commercial appeal, particularly in that franchise. Is there? It's a, it's a recognizable name, so maybe that gives you a certain starting point to work with, but. But after that, it really has to earn its own keep because there's no... How many people are really out there waiting for Tron 3 or Tron Ares, as rumour has it, it's going to be called, um, which then speculation is that that's Leto's character. Rumour has it because Jared Leto tweeted it out and then deleted it and and rewrote his tweet just saying, yes, I am doing Tron. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, he splurged that news and then uh, hastily deleted it. I mean, th- so the talk around this one—they haven't confirmed if it's going to be an actual. Sorry, oh Siri, that. shut up! Shut up, Siri. So they haven't confirmed with this one yet if it's going to be a sequel to Tron Legacy, if it's going to really connect at all. There's word of it being a reboot, and I think they're keeping it deliberately ambiguous for the moment what exactly it's going to be but i don't think people are clamoring mm. for the return of those characters it's more the idea has a lot of potential the visuals of that world are pretty iconic and obviously disney just did that massive tron ride so maybe mm. they want to kind of do something else with tron to keep it relevant and um i mean the, the visual side of it is amazing oh the but- visuals are amazing yeah but. I'm not. I'm not averse to this because I think I, they made some mistakes with Tron Legacy, but I think there's an interesting world there, and mm. 
I, you know, if they get Daft Punk back, then we'll get another great soundtrack. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, 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 I think there's potential. Yeah, there's potential. I, I'm, I'm not a Tron fan, but I am a fan of uh, Jordani Jonovic, a.k.a. John, John Wick. Wick. John, Jonathan. I'm a fan of Jonathan Wick. And uh, so we knew that uh, Keanu Reeves was going to come back as John Wick in John Wick Chapter 4. But what we didn't know was announced last week. He's also going to be coming back in John Wick Chapter 5. And both films are going to be shot back to back after The Matrix 4 finishes filming. And I presume Jazz Tehelski's going to dread direct both which is very very exciting nick was it you who tweeted yeah i'm thinking i'm back to back because that was, <laughs> that was it, might have been. it might have been <laughs> yeah there's is there too much john wick no 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 always no. more i will happily mm. take more john wick they, we, we spoke about when we did the john wick spoiler special the retro spoiler special the other week i was saying that two and three are my favorites and i love that with that series each time it's like they're just trying to one-up themselves and it kind of makes sense that the way to go to one-up yourself after john wick 3 is to do back-to-back sequels to go to go even bigger in that sense um because they've they they do kind of up the scale up the impact every time so i'm i'm excited for this and i think after sort of spoilers for the end of John Wick 3 but he comes very close to the edge of of death far beyond the the edge that most of us would find ourselves on and has not yet shuffled off this mortal coil so I think having established at this point that he's probably not a character that's going to die I don't mind them announcing two films back to back because I think that suspension of disbelief that John Wick's suddenly going to cark it that went out of the window a little while ago. So, um, yeah, bring it on. Yeah. I didn't love the ending of the last one, to be honest. I, I thought it was just it, the fact he survived. I don't want to spoil anything, but the fact he survived what happened to him, I thought <laughs> just went, all oh, right, okay, well, he's literally a superhuman now. So I, I thought that was maybe a mistake. I would be excited to see him team up with more animals. Uh, I enjoyed seeing him team up with dogs <laughs> in the last one. I think there's a lot of potential uh, hippos. Um, squirrels. Yeah. Squirrels. He's right there in New York. Yes, Come on. guns. Yeah, strap a gun to a squirrel, and there we go. That's John Wick Five. Boom. Um, uh, I have a, I have a feeling that Five will be it. You know, John Stahelski's said in many interviews, including our spoiler specials for Chapter Three and Chapter One, that John Wick was meant to die at the end of both those films, and that he said repeatedly in those interviews that he just doesn't see it ending well for John Wick no. that you know he's on a path and that path is going to result ultimately in his death uh, but then I presume you also have Lionsgate going we can be, we, we might not killing him because we like making all the money so maybe maybe they've gone look okay we'll make you four we'll also make you five but yeah, that's that's it. what I think is happening here yeah I think they've got a plan and I think this is their plan playing out. Another movie uh, that was announced just after the podcast went up last week, as is Hollywood's way. Uh, Nick, I know you'll be particularly intrigued by this one, is the news that Ben Affleck is going to write and direct a movie about the making of one of Nick's favourite movies. Mm -hmm. uh, In fact, one of the greatest movies uh, ever made, Chinatown. Yeah, Chinatown, the unofficial prequel to Roger Rabbit. Um, Mm. (laughs) Yeah, I know this is a strange one, isn't it? I just read the book uh, last month and it's a fantastic book, uh, The Big Goodbye. It sort of charts. um, It's interesting because it covers quite a lot of territory and and, um, I don't know how eventful the making of Chinatown was. Like the book, the book beautifully brings that period to life in the world and the characters, but it's not like immediately I go, oh, okay, I know what this movie is going to be. 
Uh, also, there's you know the Polanski issue. Someone is going to have to play Polanski, yeah. who is a very central character who's quoted at length in the book. And and that's my big question. It's the period just after Once Upon a Time in Hollywood takes place, where it's like after Sharon Tate's murder, and and Chinatown kind of comes out of that in a way. Yeah, I'm fascinated to see what what this turns into. Someone's going to have to play Jack Nicholson. Who who plays Jack Nicholson? Who can play Jack? Henry Nicholson? Thomas. Henry Thomas. Do they do they bust out the yeah yeah very good. Uh, do they bust out the de aging technology and get Jack to come out of retirement and play himself? Like, um, oh my god! I don't know who can play Jack Nicholson. I just don't. I do not know. Christian Slater twenty years ago, but uh, but but now I don't know unless it's Christian Slater doing de aging technology as as a youngish Jack Nicholson. But you've got so many. You know, I think you're right. I don't know necessarily that they're making enough. I haven't read the book, the Sam Wasson book, but uh, it's on my list. But I don't know that it's necessarily one that's, you know, rife with strife and has got loads and loads of incident uh, in it. But at the centre of it are these huge personalities. Nicholson, Polanski, Robert Evans, Robert Town, Faye yeah. Dunaway. You know, there's going to be a really, really interesting story there. And Affleck, we really like him as a, as a writer and director. Uh, and Live By Night didn't do well. So perhaps this is a chance for him to put that right and do another period piece that will that will sing. And Hollywood loves movie, movies about Hollywood. So expect to see this win all the Oscars uh, if and when it gets made. Maybe. Yeah. I, I think the Polanski factor might be a factor in that. I think we've mentioned in the past the, the Dirty Dancing sequel with... Jennifer Grey, but um, it was announced as well that Jonathan Levine is going to be directing that one. He's the guy who made, of course, uh, The Wackness and 50-50, The Cancer Comedy and so on. I think he's an interesting director for this role, actually, just because he's he's got a slightly offbeat sensibility and uh, and I think he can bring a lot of heart to stories that need it, um, which I think a Dirty Dancing sequel without Patrick Swayze Definitely, definitely does. But that's, I think, quite promising. I mean, obviously, they still have to get two incredibly good, likable leads to make it work. Um, and I don't know who or where they're going to get those. But, you know, if they get the chemistry <laughs> right between the two young'uns, then I think they could be on something. Helen, where do you stand on Havana Nights? Um, I did see it. And uh, it's just another dance movie and not a very good one at that. Obviously, you know, Step Up to the Street is the the (laughs) pinnacle of the modern dance movie. Um, uh, But there have been some worthwhile um, contenders. There's quite a fun one on Netflix at the moment called Work It that came out this week. Uh, So there's a sort of a template for good dance movies. And that one was just okay, you know. and it certainly wasn't a patch on the original, despite the presence, I should say, of Swayze in that. Obviously, he had a, he had a small role. Needed more watermelon in it. Um, I, have seen, I have some De Niro news. Um, What's that? Oh, my God. More, Has it doesn't just involve you? Venetian blinds, uh, but it does involve the, uh, the next Scorsese movie, Killers of the Flower Moon, mm-hmm. um, which uh-huh. is going to Apple TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Scorsese has just signed a, a massive deal with Apple to uh, do all kinds of stuff for them over many years. And the first thing will be Killers of the Flower Moon, which um, is an absolutely terrific book by David Gran. If, if you've not read it, get a copy. Um, Super Gran. It's, uh, it's terrific. It's, it's a real life uh, story um, in America and involves um, Native American tribe who, who suddenly become very rich because their land is on top of some oil and uh, becomes a kind of murder mystery because they start sort of getting bumped off. And The thing about this movie to me is still, it's $200 million in how? Mm-hmm. Apparently, as far as we know, the cast only cost 55 of that 
for De Niro, DiCaprio and Scorsese himself. Where is the other 145 going? Apparently it's 180 now, so maybe they, they've reduced the catering budget by 20 million and how, uh, I mean, everyone's eating crisps. How is it even 180? Like, I genuinely, I, I, reading that book, it's a fantastic book, I totally agree. I, there is a version of that movie that costs $20 million. I feel like there's going to be a lot of very expensive hats in it. Like, I just get that sense from reading it. Like, hats, the hats in this movie are going to be off the scale. Uh, they're going Man. to be amazing. Be I, guess, I guess there's going to be a lot of uh, location uh, stuff. I know that Scorsese, like, over well over a year ago, was out there scouting all these locations. Yeah, but it's in, not um, like an expensive place to shoot, is it? What, on the moon? <laughs> they have to build the time travel technology to go back to the 1920s. You know, he's he fell in love with the de-aging stuff, so he's going to just... Y- Go yeah, one further this yeah, time. I, I genuinely feel like it's either A, time travel, B, he's personally playing, paying uh, compensation to the Osage Nation for everything that was stolen from them. <laughs> or C, like I genuinely don't even know what C is. I think it's time travel or compensation. Joe Pesci could be playing all of the children in the story using de aging <laughs> tech. Like he just suddenly loves the D's. Money, put me in the movie. I can play every kid. And so just for no reason, Pesci's playing every ch- child. And that's why it costs them. I'm going to kill your flower moon, you fuck. <laughs> that does sound amazing. That's what he. That's what he says. I'm a bit baffled by that as well. Um, but hey, the Irishman turned out great. So I guess as long as we're not paying him, if someone's willing to do it, I'm, I'm, I'm not ahead. arguing. I'm not arguing that it won't be good. I'm not arguing that, you know, people shouldn't give Martin Scorsese money. If you want to give Martin Scorsese money, you, no, no argument. I just, I'm genuinely, yeah. I don't understand where it goes. I, uh, it's, anyway. Uh, no, I, I, I have massive sets, building towns. It's building only one town. Entire, you literally need one town. Knows? Like, well, if you build it for real, that's, that's still I mean, quite expensive. sure, but you not know. 180 million. Like, a genuine, I'm not trying to be argumentative. I just don't well, understand it. Whenever the movie comes out, we'll get the accountant in here. We'll go over the I books. would be fascinated. <laughs> I genuinely think that would be a good episode. Hollywood accountant is one of the, the weirdest things. I mean, you know, the amount of movies that are still apparently aren't in profit uh, after years and years and years of being massively in profit uh, you know, absolutely blows my mind. But uh, Zac Efron is going to star in a Disney Plus reboot of Three Men and a Baby. I presume he's playing one of the three men. I'm so here for it. Who's playing the ghost? <laughs> <laughs> Tom Selleck's moustache. No, don't say that. It'll never <laughs> die, Chris. It'll never die. Apart from that one time he shaved oh, it off on Friends and it just it's went just wrong. Horrible. It just you know what what's going on there? Don't don't yeah. do that. Never do that again, Selick. No, I have I have a lot of affection for uh, both three men films. I know they're not good, but I just like them. And mm-hmm. uh, and I f- kind of feel like you know Zac Efron still feels like he's about twenty two, but I think he is thirty odd. He's only nineteen, but his mind yeah. is older. He can't be that much younger than you know Ted Danson was in the original or Gutenberg. So yeah, I'll allow it honestly. <laughs> I'm amazed that this hasn't happened sooner because, and this is honestly true, Free Men and a Baby was the biggest grossing film yeah. of 1987, mm-hmm. which is insane considering there were massive blockbusters and all kinds of things, but it, it made so much money. But I just think that's testament to, you know, the fact that it's not just teenage boys who always go to the cinema. And, and I think people forget sometimes how big some of these films are. Like Mamma Mia being as big as it was back in the day, you know. Um, I guess it going to Disney Plus, this reboot, in yeah. su- suggests they don't have confidence in it being the highest grossing film of 2021 or whatever. Um, well, that's true. Or they just don't want to spend the money on it, more likely. But yeah, I think uh, I think it could be fun. If you get Efron alone, that's $200 million oh right God. there. Is it? He has to be full of She's playing the, bo- the baby. <laughs> Change my diapers, you fuck. That's what... Uh, that's what he says. That's what he says that all the time. That would be a good look who's uh, talking. 
it would be a good look who's talking, wouldn't it be? You know, but that's never going to show up in Disney Plus. Um, sadly, is look who's it? pistol whipping. <laughs> <laughs> That brings me very, very quickly to the last thing I want to talk about, which is really, really sad, which is that this week, officially, that was it. Uh, the 20th Century Fox brand name has been retired officially by Disney. Um, and we knew this was coming. But I don't know. I just feel it's really, really sad that what's happened. You know, it's been, what, a year now since Disney officially acquired Fox. We don't seem to be any closer to getting any movies made by that company that would have been made under the Fox or even the Fox Searchlight banners. Uh, you can't get Fox movies, by and large, on Disney+, Plus, as we discussed on the podcast a few weeks ago. Anything that's over a 12 is right out. Uh, they're sitting in this incredible library. They don't seem to be doing anything with it. I'm not going to jump to conclusions. They might announce something in the next week that goes, yes, finally, we're going to use all our incredible Fox library, and now it is available to everybody. Hooray! And we're going to be making loads of movies with swearing in it, and it's not big and clever, but my God, it's entertaining. It might happen, but for me, it's just it's just really really sad what's happened. Mm. I mean, I I wonder if in the months coming out of the COVID pandemic, if we'll start to see them greenlighting a few more things on that Fox property uh, from that slate that that they've picked up. Because I guess once that deal was going through, it takes a few months to sort everything out, and then we hit this mm. this point where nobody was greenlighting anything, and we started to see in the last few weeks we are finally getting. Bits of announcements here and there of things being greenlit, obviously films that had had to stop shooting going back into production, but I guess in many ways it just wasn't the time to be announcing anything. We, we've heard bits of rumours here and there about what they might be doing with Alien, that there are various things, whether that's a Ripley project, whether that there's been talk of uh, Walter Hill doing new screenplays and things, so it might be that they have stuff going on in the background with those Fox properties, but they're just not in any place to uh, to do mm. anything with it yet. But I, yeah, mm. you'd hope that that they're still going to make those sorts of movies, even though it's under the, the Disney banner. I really hope mm. so. I really, really hope so. Let's see what happens in the future. Time now for our second interview this week. And yes, it's me again, jumping in. And in keeping with my new policy, this is the first 15 to 16 minutes or so of my nearly 40-minute interview with Joe and Anthony Russo. You may know them, of course, as the Russos, directors of some movies we talk about on this show from time to time. Things about wintry soldiers and civil wars and end games or I don't know I forget the details but during lockdown they have been reinventing themselves as the hosts of their own Instagram slash YouTube show the Russo Brothers Pizza Film School in which they and some very special guests including Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely, Bob Gale, Taika Waititi, Josh Brolin, Mark Hamill and more talk about some of their favorite movies over slices of delicious pizza. The weekly series is now over, but you can still catch up with all the episodes covering movies like La Hen, The Empire Strikes Back, Ronin, Once Upon a Time in the West, The Evil Dead, Flash Gordon, and No Country for Old Men, and more on their Instagram and YouTube channels, and they're really fun and informative watches. I spoke to the brothers, who are both in separate lockdown, of course, just ahead of the broadcast of the last episode in which they talk back to the future. And so what you're going to hear is a lot of pizza and pizza film school talk. Enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on the Emperor podcast by Joe Russo and Anthony Russo. Uh, I was going to say directors of some small independent films you may have heard of, but uh, 
now you're hosts of your own show. What's what's going on, guys? The uh, the Russo brothers Pizza Film School. You know, there were really a function of um, the lockdown, and uh, I started watching films with my kids as something to for all of us to look forward to on a regular basis. And then we would have family discussions after the movie. Um, you know, my daughter studied film. My son is studying film. Uh, so it just uh, it became a, a a good family exercise, and that was my oldest daughter who said, "You know what? I think you, you and Anne should do this uh, uh, on the internet because I'm sure there's a lot of people right now who would you know want to look forward to something or be part of a community or discussion." Uh, and uh, and we thought it was a great idea, and so we just came up with Pizza Film School because we can never really take anything too seriously. So. <laughs> We thought, all right, how do we, how do we take the pretension out of, uh, out of film school? Yeah. It, f- it feels sometimes like the pizza part is the most important part. Of Without the question, I don't. I think she knew that that's how she would motivate me to do it. <laughs> is that I would get pizza once a week if I uh, if I did the show. It's it's been fascinating actually tracking your choices of pizza throughout yeah. the uh, throughout the episodes. Uh, and your last episode is uh, well, it's, it's today as we're recording this actually. That's right. Um, so not to give too much away, but uh, Anth, what is your what is your pizza of choice today, and uh, what's your pizza game like in general? My pizza game in general. Uh, well, here's the thing: is I can't even remember exactly what my pizza choice was for this episode. I'd have to look back. But my pizza game in general is I I generally eat vegan, and there has been a huge leap forward in vegan pizza making in the past several years. Um, and I, that I've been really excited by. So there's like uh, some very delicious pizza. There's a pizza place right near our office here in downtown Los Angeles called Superfine, which makes an amazing slice of vegan pizza that has a lot of interesting vegetables, but a lot of spice to it. It's mm-hmm. like when you're dealing, sometimes when you're dealing without the cheese, you got to have something else fun in there. And spice is usually the go-to for vegan pizza. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, absolutely. I mean, vegan pizza, there's no cheese in that. So yeah. what are you going to do? Well, there are some, there's some vegan pizzas made with vegan cheese. There's a, in Atlanta where we did shot a lot of those small independent movies you were referencing. <laughs> uh, there's an amazing pizzeria there called a matza and they do a vegan picante, which is a spicy pizza, but, and they use a vegan cheese on that. It's delicious. Amazing. And yeah. uh, Joe, what about you? What's your pizza game in general? I mean, my pizza game is intense. You know, my daughter got me gluten-free about four months ago. But before that, you know, I I was, uh, uh, you know, I've got my best places around the country. I'm a Prince Street pizza guy out of New York. I love pepperoni and they do really, really thick cut. I mean, they'll take an entire stick of pepperoni and put it on one slice of pizza. So that's like heaven for me. Uh, Interestingly enough, in Atlanta, they have Antica and they have a place called Verisano's. Two of my favorites in the country are both there. We got a place in Cleveland, um, a uh, a bakery that uh, that that we loved growing up called Presti's that actually serves like Roman pizza. They do it room temperature, so it sits out and uh, and you point at it and you don't heat it up and you eat it room temp. Uh, and they do an incredible pizza as well. So, what about you, Chris? Are you are you a pizza head? I'm I'm I you know I am I am, but uh, I'm gonna shame myself now because I, I, I do like a Domino's. <laughs> so does my daughter. It's, it's like her spot. favorite pizza. It's sacrilegious. <laughs> really? I, I lived in LA for a year back in 2008. And uh, 
and you always getting too much pizza uh, when one time the Domino's guy came and said, see you next week. And I was like, oh, okay. No, you won't. <laughs> no, he did. He did. <laughs> I placed orders for the next five weeks immediately. Um, but there's also an important part of the film school, which is, of course, the films that you discuss. Um, and quite often with special guests. And so this week's episode, for example, is dedicated to Back to the Future. You've also got, you know, you've had Taika talking about Flash Gordon. You've had Josh Brolin on there talking about No Country for Old Men. I loved that episode. I thought that was fantastic. Uh, Mark Hamill, you know, doing what Mark Hamill does best, which is, and I said this while I live in the world, not shutting up uh, on The Empire Strikes Back. But I thought it was great because we, we got all of his stories into two hours, right? So, like, there's a comprehensive source you can go to for every Mark Hamill story, and it's those two hours of pizza film school. That's awesome. And also, I should say, we don't, we don't have your interview skills, Chris, so it's... You know. I don't have my interview skills. <laughs> <laughs> Do you really think you got... Every Mark Hamill story in two hours. <laughs> close. I mean, it was close. We edited down, I think, from like two and a half. So we kept the poor guy on the phone for two and a half hours. But again, you got a bunch of Star Wars geeks sitting there talking to their their childhood icon, you know. And it, I always find that in this business, people always ask friends or relatives. You get nervous around famous people, and I, I tend to find that it it's not the case unless they were famous when you were a child. And then you get really nervous around them because the kid in you comes out. And so I felt like the four of us talking to Mark Hamill were all very nervous. And I will, I will add this as, as, per your question about did we get all the stories in two hours. Uh, when we stopped recording, we continued to talk with him and we got some more stories that are specifically not to be recorded stories. <laughs> those are great quite, stories. They're quite good, but <laughs> yeah. We can't speak about them. Yeah, those are, those are the best stories. Yeah. The ones you can pass on uh, at dinner tables you know, yes. in a few years' time going, I, I heard this from a very, very good source <laughs> about the Empire Strikes Back. But it has been fascinating watching, how the, first of all, how the show has progressed over time. It's gone from really kind of lo-fi beginnings where it's just you guys in, in your houses. Um, didn't even really have like an introduction, had like a simple logo it, it was live you know we were yeah, literally it doing live. it live yeah it yeah. was just like a no safety net live we like lo-fi we like tearing down ceremony we're not big fans of pomp and circumstance we don't like you know we're from cleveland and our, our we found our way into film through a local cinema tech and a love for movies and anth and i make movies because we grew up watching them and talking about them and quoting them ad nauseum. You know, that was our upbringing. We did not, you know, we did not, it, it was revered in so much as it was uh, a source of conversation for us. And we loved losing ourselves in those stories. But we also don't like the mystique that surrounds it or that the, the mystique that certain people try to apply to it. We don't like pseudo intellectualism. You know, we, we, you know, we find that it's sort of as exclusive and a, as, a, as abhorrent as. Uh, conservative thought. So, you know, we like to, we like to make things available to everyone. Uh, and we mm -hmm. find that life is always best in balance. So we wanted to do something that we felt was super approachable and, and did, didn't have a lot of production value to it. Now, as you progress, things happen. Like Kyle, you know, who's an amazing rapper was in Cherry and, and said, Hey, I, I could do a hilarious theme song for you. We're like, okay, great. Then he did the theme song and we heard it and laughed so hard. We said, we have to do some kind of 
Terry Gilliam-esque ridiculous <laughs> animation to this. So we called our friends at, at a VFX house, Visual Creatures, and said, will you come up with something completely ridiculous for this? And then, you know, we started recording and prepping a little more because we felt like, you know, we were getting uh, more concise in our approach and, and it developed into what it is. I don't think we would ever produce it beyond what it is right now, which is, you know, a very casual conversation with people that we love and admire about story structure, using clips from movies to sort of, you know, reinforce the conversation that we're having. Although for our next season of this show, we may start wearing makeup. <laughs> kiss, kiss makeup. <laughs> oh, that'd be amazing. Yeah. And full-blown cosplay for every single film. That'd be, that'd be great. I could just imagine you all wearing sort of that, that Marty McFly windbreaker type thing. <laughs> that'd be, that'd be quite interesting. But the, the choice of films has been really, I don't know, illustrative, I guess, of your of your tastes. I mean, you've been very open about how these movies have informed you as as filmmakers. So, you know, you've got the likes of La Hen in there. You've got Ronan. I love Ronan. Um, I've got a I've got a slight bone to pick with you guys. You chose The Evil Dead, and not the greatest movie of all time, Evil Dead, Evil Dead Two. Dead 2. <laughs> we did that because I wanted to talk about. Raimi is the pioneer of do-it-yourself filmmaking. I mean, that movie really was bootstrap filmmaking. Yeah. And, and when you read the stories about how he made it, it was terrifying. I mean, they, they were in the woods with no running water, no electricity, everyone getting sick. You know, that's like, you see those stories so rarely now of like, you know, everyone contributing in the most extreme way, you know, physically demanding uh, film shoot. Uh, and and it turned into a worldwide phenomenon. I thought that was the inspiring aspect of that. Mm. I do love Evil Dead 2. I, I love it more than Evil Dead 1, but I have an admiration for what Evil Dead 1 is that was worth talking about, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the fact that they were, you know, they were literally welding a camera to a plank of wood and using that as their steadicam or... And running through a swamp with it. <laughs> like, you know. And, and by the way, if you, you know... Raimi is really directly responsible for the Coens. Uh, you know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, the, you know, Joel was cutting on that movie. That is the uh, the camera that the Coens then you know continued to make famous and utilize in their films. After Raimi used it for probably the you know the coolest point of view monster in horror movie history, uh, and uh, and so a lot came out of that movie, and that's why it's really a really special film. How did you all choose the films? Did you get one choice each, Anthony? I mean, how, how did you, is there anything that, that particularly sings to you on this list? We, we just, we, look at it, it was very, very hard coming up with the list, to be honest with you, because there are so many movies that we love. So, but there, you know, there's certain things that we sort of keep returning to over and over. And a lot of it had to do with uh, what kind of guests we could find to help illuminate, you know, each individual film. So, um you know, I have to say, I, I loved all the experiences. Uh, Josh Brolin was really eye-opening for me because even though we've worked with him, it's just, I, and I had this sense of him from working with him, but it, I, I came to understand this even more in that episode of what a fan he is and what a student he is of filmmaking. I mean, he really takes it all in and he uses it all and he understands it all in a way that I, not a lot of actors do. And I find that really remarkable about him, and he has it, and his point of view as a result of that is is really uh, exciting. Can you draw direct lines from many of these films 
to the films that you've made. I mean, for example, you you reference Back to the Future uh, notoriously <laughs> in Endgame. You call it a bunch of bullshit uh, whilst having Alan Silvestri score your film, guys. I mean, what's going on there? Uh, and then, of course, there's Cap's entrance in Infinity War, which that is pure Once Upon a Time in the West. That's, that's Chuck Bronson turning up at the beginning. Yep. As yeah, well as sure. the, the end of Endgame, when the uh, Thor, uh, Iron Man, and Cap uh, walk towards Thanos, and Thanos gives that, you know, uh, um, you know, th- uh, thematic speech sitting on a stump, uh, mm. you know, uh, all, a very casual uh, performance. Uh, you know, that, that scene at the end where uh, of Once Upon a Time West, where Fonda approaches uh, Bronson sitting on a, a stump. Mm. Uh, was uh, you know shown to uh, the crew on several occasions and the actors, so everyone understood what we were the homage we were trying to uh, to pay there. And I think, look, again, we are intertextualists. We are filmmaking fans who got into movies because we loved watching them and talking about them. And you know, Soderbergh was our mentor, and Soderbergh is a very disciplined filmmaker who likes to shift genre. He doesn't like to be defined. You know, there is no, I don't know that you could say anything is Soderberghian the way you could say something is Cohen, Cohen-esque or Tarantino-esque, right? Mm. Uh, uh, because he, he, he's so uh, eclectic in his choices. And we always admired that. And part of being disciplined is, is, you know, understanding how you craft story and structure. And Anthony and I spent years under Soderbergh's tutelage, figuring out how to write uh uh, screenplays, and we created our own structure that we could follow to tell stories. Story is really paramount to us. So, um, you know, film school, pizza film school is really us relaying to other people, hey, here's the process we came up with that helps us get through it. Here's some benchmarks and some tent poles that you can aim yourself towards because it can be a daunting process. But, you know, we want everyone to be able to tell stories, and we want as many diverse voices as possible telling stories because that's what makes filmmaking so vibrant and will keep it alive and and, uh, and, a, and, a, and a dominant art form. It's interesting you say that, Soderbergh, because Soderbergh himself is, you know, when I think of Soderbergh, I think of someone who likes to subvert genre and certainly deconstruct genre. You know, whenever he's whenever he's on genre films, he tends to come at it from a from a, an obscure angle, an obtuse angle even. Um, is that something that you guys, in a way, brought on uh, as well when you were making these, these massive behemoths? I mean, that's always been a, an, a critical element of our sensibilities, you know. And again, I think it comes a little bit from from our growing up in Cleveland, like Joe was talking before. It's just there's sort of you have it, you know. It's it was the city went through very tough times, especially while we were growing up, and it's you develop a sort of a slight detachment uh, when you're in that kind of an environment. And you develop a certain type of attitude toward bad events that helps distance you from them. And so I think that we've carried, we sort of carried that, um, that grounding into our appreciation of film. And uh, we like to, we like to have layers going on, layers of understanding going on while we're experiencing in a film. We know, we know why we love films. We know uh, on a superficial, we love movies because they're exciting and kinetic and funny and surprising. And, you know, all these sort of very base level um, effects that, that can get thrill us. But we also like movies that are operating on a level where 
we don't know what's going to happen next. We don't know where the movie's going to go next. Um, and so I think that having that dual level of awareness as we're telling stories has always been very f- important to us. And that was the first 15 minutes or so of Joe and Anthony Russo. And if you want to hear more, then you are in luck. The full episode in which we go on to talk about how they dealt with Endgame becoming the biggest movie of all time and their future projects, including The Grey Man, starring Chris Evans and Ryan Gosling, will be up this weekend as its own special. Now, do write in and let me know if you like or don't like this new way of doing things. I'm always trying to come up with new ways to keep things running smoothly around here, so feedback is appreciated. Right, enough prattling for me, or this thing is going to run three hours or more. Once again, I return you to our regularly scheduled podcast programming. Let's move on to talk about the movies that are available for you to watch Maybe in the cinema? Maybe from your sofa multiplex. Uh, and let's start with something that is available to watch in your sofa plex. It is, of course, it is, of course, like it's famous. It is Project Power, the latest film from Joost and Schulman, the directors of Catfish. But this isn't a documentary, is it, Benjamin Travis? If it is, I will be totally shocked. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> it seems unlikely. It seems it's it's uh, it's far fetched. We'll give it that. Um, this is a film that has, for once, actually quite a new take on superheroes. Uh, it has a sort of new idea behind the superhero mythos, which is that there is a power pill that is making its way through the streets of New Orleans, and if you New take Orleans. one. New, uh, New Orleans, I know. I, know. I always feel like Nons. I always feel weird saying it that Nons. way. <laughs> New Orleans, New Orleans. Is that that sort of halfway in the middle? <laughs> anyway, Nola. <laughs> Nola. It's it. The, this this power pill is flooding the streets of Nola, and if you take one, you get f- a five minute boost of superpowers. But the twist is that you don't know what your superpower is going to be until you take one. So it's highly unpredictable, it's highly addictive, and it's causing havoc around the city. Now, on this sort of premise, we get various viewpoints. The main one is a young black woman called Robin, who is a dealer who is sort of working with a cop called Frank, uh, played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who is trying to rid the streets of, of this drug and try and find the source, find where it's coming from. And he has a slightly cavalier sort of attitude to to the sort of strictures of the law and thinks, hey, if all the criminals have this power pill, the police should have it too. Uh, and then off to the side, you have Jamie Foxx playing this mysterious guy called Art, who has a sort of personal vendetta uh, linked to the power pill and is on his own mission to try and find the source of it. So it's, I don't know, I thought that premise overall was quite hooky, this idea of, of mm-hmm. that you only get a short burst of your powers, you don't know what any character's power is going to be until you see them take the pill. Sometimes they don't know themselves what it's going to be. It's super Viagra, was- basically, is what it is. <laughs> it is. Sadly, the, the the pills aren't blue. They're a sort of glowing yellow capsule. They um, uh, There's a lot of visual style to the film, and I think you see that even literally in the pill itself. It's this little sort of, yeah, glowy yellow capsule. You twist it, and it sort of sparks up. Um, but kind of like... So this is a Netflix film, and kind of like The Old Guard, for me, it had has an interesting premise and quite a cool idea and then doesn't do as much with it as you mm. hope that it would. It's sort of a similarly to to the old guard. It's kind of trapped in this quite 
uninteresting plot where you've got a shadowy organisation who seems to be behind things with some fairly ineffectual <laughs> villains who are just letting everything play out uh, and you know it's going to get back to them in the end. So it's, a, it's I don't know, it has a really interesting idea and then doesn't do that much with it. But Dominique Fishback plays Robin, the sort of uh, the dealer who's working with the cop. And um, I think that's a really interesting way into the story. And I think Dominique Fishback is really, really good in this role. She's mm. very um, sort of charming, very engaging. And you feel for her as this person who doesn't come from privilege, who um, is sort of trapped by circumstance and is doing what she can. And she has potential inside her. There's lots of metaphors going on here about <laughs> the potential inside people and the power that you have inside and unleashing that that's quite clunkily done there's also uh, a sort of thread about the idea of what power is who has power how it's distributed in a way that um i think is again an interesting idea that the film doesn't really do enough with but the uh, the thing for me that i liked about this film beyond dominique fishback's performance i think she's really great is it's just flashy and colourful. It's very stylish. The action is fine, but it's presented in a sort of pretty diverting way. Deuce and Shulman are very sort of stylistic directors. They have this really digital aesthetic that you saw everything from Catfish to they did Paranormal Activity sequels. They did a thriller called Nerve. Everything they yeah. do has a like sort of... film. What, mm. Nerve? You see it? You're, you're no, I haven't it. seen it. It looks fun. It's got. A, it's not a million miles away uh, in its aesthetic mm-hmm. uh, from this movie. Actually, yeah, everything they do has like bright colors going on and sort mm. of um, comes from a digital perspective, and you feel that in this. So it's it's really slick and pretty well put together. I think it's just the film itself doesn't live up to the the trappings necessarily. I thought it was fun as well. I mean, I I enjoyed it. It's one of those films that fades, I think, quite fast from the memory. I think. Um, Dominic Fishback was, as you say, absolutely the standout. I think, you know, as a, a sort of young teen, not even an older teenager, but quite a young teenager, I think, trying to get her, you know, keep her family afloat, really. I think she that's a really compelling arc to come from, as you say. And um and I think she gets quite a lot to do. I think nobody else in the film gets much in the way of character development. Um and I thought that was a shame because I feel like you really need to explain exactly why Joseph Gordon Levitt is doing what he's doing. And I think we needed maybe a little bit more than just flashbacks uh, to explain what Jamie Foxx is doing there. It feels like there's been a bit of maybe moving things around and shifting stuff and that maybe that's what dropped out somewhere along the way. Because it would have been nice to have a bit more time for conversation occasionally, just just maybe. But I did enjoy <laughs> like some of the action scenes I thought was really, really effective. There's one scene involving uh, cold, which I haven't seen done quite like that before, and I thought that was really interesting. So there's there's some really good stylistic choices. Just yeah, it's not quite all it could have been. So there's quite a cool scene inside a glass cage or glass tank, and yeah, that's the one you I watch mean. a fight happening outside it from inside. Yeah, I I I feel like the directors were much more preoccupied with how the film looked than how it sounded or flowed like the dialogue is very first base um i think if you did a drinking game and had a shot every time someone says the next stage in human evolution you'd be absolutely (laughs) hammered by like 20 minutes in um i mean it's i I couldn't get past the fact it's essentially x-men meets limitless and and Mm. it's just not as good as either i did not particularly enjoy it it it, it, i I didn't really engage with any of the characters i thought dominique fishback was was good she's likable but i didn't think the script did her any favors i enjoyed the rap yeah, the, the character quirk of you know her being a rapper and actually getting to unleash that talent mm. without taking a pill that gives her incredible rapping powers for five minutes only. 
uh, ah, was well, quite as you know, there's an interesting Mongolian yak that has wrapping powers, <laughs> and that's where that comes from, Chris. It's all scientific. It's all very well explained. It's all scientific. <laughs> it does give by a lot on the charisma of its three leads. Mm. Fishbacker Fox and uh, JGL are all very, very good separately, and then every now and again the movie remembers that they should probably be in some scenes together as well. And they're quite good. I mean, you know, and Fishback's character has, you know, she's got interesting relationships with both Art, aka the Major, and with Frank as well. It's also a little interesting wrinkle about it being a very much a post-Katrina New Orleans movie, um, which is which is interesting, uh, some decent visual sequences. I think it gets a visual sense of New Orleans across really well. Like, mm. I'm so used to seeing these sorts of, let's be honest, fairly generic sort of um, diverting three-star action films that are set either in sort of a pretty grey New York or a pretty sort of bog-standard sprawling LA, and they make good use of New Orleans as a, as a colourful place, as a vibrant city. Yeah, mm. but without going to the French Quarter practically at all, which and, and avoiding a lot of those kind of New Orleans cliches as well, which I thought mm. was was clever. Although it did mean we didn't get any beignet, which, you know, is always upsetting. <laughs> I took a star off for that. <laughs> I think one of the most frustrating things, one thing that I wish it did more of was uh, it has this great idea of how the powers work that you get them for five minutes, but the powers themselves, you've basically seen all of them before in any number of X-Men movies. They don't really give yeah. you any sort of exciting mm. new powers where you go, oh, I haven't seen that before. There is one, there is an interesting take on sort of invisibility slash camouflage that um, I saw that and I thought, I, I don't think I've seen that done in other superhero films in this way. And I, I, I quite liked that as a visual uh, touch. Maybe, maybe it doesn't make the most sense for what it's used for. But um, I think for the rest of the powers, I'm just like, you've got this kind of quite fun angle on on superheroes. Like, give someone some weird powers, come up with, invent something new um, that we haven't seen. Because I think when those powers are deployed, it's hard not to feel like, oh, I, I've I've kind of seen this before. It's written by Madsen Tomlin, uh, who uh, is actually co-writing The Batman with Matt Reeves. And uh, in fact, they, Batman is mentioned in the movie which I thought might have been a little tongue-in-cheek in-joke, possibly. I'm not sure of the timeline of when this movie was made uh, in regards to, you know, the Batman being made. But uh, I, I, I don't know. I enjoyed it. I thought it was fine. I thought it was fine. But uh, we'll get into it more in our spoiler special. We'll be able to dig into some of the more interesting plot developments. Three stars then for Project Power, which is available on Netflix. Uh, next up is a film that's available only on Disney Plus over here in the UK, and that is simply called... Howard, and it's a documentary about the great Howard Ashman, who was one half of one of the greatest songwriting teams in history. Yes, he was. He worked, of course, with Alan Menken on Little Shop of Horrors, for which alone they would have gone down in history. But they also, of course, did um, Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and about Beauty half and of Beast. Aladdin. Um so yeah, um, uh, Howard Ashman, this is not a spoiler to the extent that such things exist in hist history, but um, he died of AIDS um, before uh, Aladdin was, fin uh, was finished, obviously. Um, but even before Beauty and the Beast came out, he actually won his Oscar posthumously for that and was the first person to die of AIDS um, uh, before receiving an Oscar. Um, and 
so anyway, so it's a, a kind of a tragic story in many ways, but also a celebration of his life, a celebration mm -hmm. of uh, his talent and what made mm -hmm. him extraordinary. Um, the work that worked, the work that didn't work. Um, you know, he 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 sort of uh, blazed through college doing experimental theater, came to New York, ended up opening up this tiny little space that they could kind of do shows in. Um, sometimes things work there and then they would transfer to Broadway and they would just flop horribly. So he, he grew to have this kind of uh, slightly antagonistic relationship almost with Broadway and, and found, I think that's why when he went to Disney, he found that he could suddenly do all of the creative work that he'd been hungering to do without quite as much of the, of the difficulties as he faced as a sort of small scale um, producer of theatre in New York. Mm. So that's basically the story. It's the story of a really talented guy who was brought down literally in his prime. I think he was still in his 30s when he died um, and, uh, and had accomplished so much already and sort of packed in so much incident into his life. Um, it's told very affectionately with the voices of those who knew him best, who loved him best. Um, and there are hints sometimes that maybe, you know, if this wasn't a Disney documentary, there would be some more stuff in it that might be quite interesting. There, there are hints of it being perhaps a little sanitized and a little careful around the edges. But to its credit, it, you know, and I know this is giving them praise for doing the absolute least, but this is a Disney documentary about an out gay man um, that includes, mm -hmm. you know, discussion of his love life, that includes discussion of, you know, uh, gay life in the early 1980s in New York City. So it goes that far at least, but I, I just feel like there's probably some edges to Howard. You get a sense of his edges here, but you don't necessarily get a lot of discussion about them. And I feel like there's been mm. a little bit of kind of, you know, sanding down the corners here before putting it on Disney+. Plus. So this this isn't probably definitive, I guess, um, but it is a real insight into an extraordinary man. And for those of us who are fans of his work, I think it's really, really lovely to learn so much more about him. And it is incredibly moving in just talking about everything that he went through. I, th I think the fact that it is on Disney Plus and that it does have those like little bit of sanding off around the edges, I think is one of the most important things about it. Because as you said, uh, Disney is still not particularly up with the times. You're starting to see it creep into some of the more recent Disney films in very, very minor ways, like in the live action Beauty and the Beast yeah. uh, of, of uh, LeFou, is it? The Josh Gad mm -hmm. character that is sort of hinted at or maybe explicitly stated once that he's gay. And in things like Onward, we had uh, Lena Waithe voicing a, uh, a, a gay character in that. It's mentioned very, very briefly. And these tiny moments in those films are actually... They shouldn't be, but they are quite big milestones in their own sense. So the fact that there is a documentary on Disney Plus telling Howard Ashman's stories, and like you said, his story is so intrinsically linked to who he was and his sexuality was a big part of that and the fact that he died quite early on in the in the AIDS crisis the fact that that documentary exists at all in a Disney plus version and that Disney is embracing every part of his legacy I think mm. is is an important thing and you feel mm. it in the telling of the story as well that he was sort of wary of telling people for for many reasons but part of that was him being aware of being so closely associated with Disney and it being a sort of inverted commas family company. And mm -hmm. so that becomes part of the text of the documentary as well. It's not a huge interrogation of that, but it feels 
closer than maybe Disney have ever come before to acknowledging these things, especially the way that that intersects with with their own legacy. Because his songs, when they get to the point of the Disney songs, of the Beauty and the Beast music, of the Little Mermaid and Aladdin, those those are the films that I grew up on, the Disney films. And the songs really are extraordinary. And you, you feel how much of him, his personality is mm. is in those songs. He's just an extraordinary guy. I mean, just the wit and the the quickness of mind to come up with some of those lyrics, I think, is is incredible. And it was lovely. I mean, I've now got basically a playlist of all his other work <laughs> to kind of go and look up because I hadn't, uh, I didn't know about some of his other, you know, sort of pre Little Shop and post Little Shop shows that I'm now going to read up on. It's great. So yeah, if you're a fan at all of the music, mm. then this is definitely one to watch. We don't have an official Empire review of this, but it sounds to me like these guys are in the three to four star camp. Yeah. So three to four stars then for Empire. I'd say four. Four I'd stars. I'd say sort of three, three and a half. Three stars. <laughs> I'm just disappointed it's not a Big Bang Fury spinoff. <laughs> <laughs> but now you're talking. That would be a five star. Bye. Five stars then. Please, please, if you're listening producers, do not make a Big Bang Fury spinoff. Howard! <laughs> Yes. Three to four stars then for Howard, which is now available on Disney+. Plus. Uh, but a film that is actually going to be out in the cinemas this weekend is Baby Teeth. Napes, tell us all about Baby Teeth. I really, really liked Baby Teeth. I mean, mm. it's, um, it's a beautiful film. It's a small film. It's a film about relationships. There's, there's no robots or, or sort of uh, super-powered pills in it. Um, but yeah, it just gripped me all the way through. It's uh, the story of... This uh, young girl called Mila, played by Eliza Scanlon um, from Little Women, mm-hmm. who, like in Little Women, is not very well. Again, she's got cancer and um, essentially is is kind of in her last days. And um, so there's the, the sadness of that, but also the joy of her first relationship, which is with this, um, this guy called Moses, who is uh, not what her parents want <laughs> for her when, he, when he's brought home. He's got a rat tail. He's got a tattoo on his face um he's he's a a bit of a scuzzy customer yeah he's a drug dealer um but yeah it's the story of their relationship it's the story of the parents who are played by ben mendelson and essie davis from the babadook there's no babadook in this film either unfortunately (laughs) um and it's really just yeah it's a four-hander it's it's the story of these four characters and um the sadness and the joy that they kind of fall in love and that as the parents sort of start to accept um accept this guy who is now a big part of their lives. And I just thought all four of the actors are on fire. Mm. Um, and it's, yeah, it, it's an emotional experience watching it. Definitely. I felt a bit exhausted afterwards. Yeah, it's really, it's actually a first film by a director called Shannon Murphy. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I didn't realise it was her first film until I kind of looked her up afterwards. She's done some work on Killing Eve, but this is her first featured debut and um, it's really great. It's got a lot of personality to it. The film's got these little chapter titles all the way through that it's, some of them are quite, there's one that just says, fuck this. <laughs> um, and it's, the film has just got a lot of personality. It's really interesting in the care that it pay, it, it gives to the parents. You know, it's not just a sort of tragic girl story. First of all, cause she mm. is not tragic. She's, you know, out there kind of living her life as best she can with, you know, with this illness. Um, but also it, I think it's really nuanced in its portrayal of the parents because they do have moments of absolute sort of despair and they both dabble in prescription drugs to, you know, get them through. 
But at the same time, you know, you get the sense that there's fundamentally affection and love and uh, a determination to to live as much as they can in these circumstances. And I think that's that really puts it apart from from some of the other sort of you know misery stories we've seen about teenagers with cancer. I mean, which is you know, I don't want to sound reductive because it's a it's obviously a big area, but it's it's good to have different perspectives and it's good to have different takes on on these kind of horrific uh, circumstances and i think well when you get actors like ben mendelson and essie davis you're going to have a pretty good basis to work from but i think they're both extraordinary here and i just i really really liked their relationship i thought it was really you know it's tense at times it's not always easy they fight they bicker but at the same time there's there's real love in this family unit and it sort of make makes you root for all of them as much as possible as they go through this yeah it never feels like it's trying to make you cry like it doesn't feel like it's mm. trying to tug at your heartstrings it doesn't go for the obvious it's interesting like she's you know it's a story about somebody with cancer but there's no scenes in the hospital or doesn't really dwell on that side of things um and it's um yeah, there's a lot of kind of joy in the film as well. I, I liked mm. seeing Mendelssohn playing against type a little bit. Like he's not playing the rough kind of... It's interesting because the uh, the Moses role is almost something you can imagine Mendelssohn having done amazingly yeah. when he was younger. Um, but he plays this very warm kind of guy who's a bit bit gentle and doesn't quite know what to do. He's a bit baffled by how to, how to deal with this guy who's suddenly in the family. And uh, yeah, it was like a different kind of performance from him, I thought. Hmm. Sounds great. Four stars. We gave this four stars then for Baby Teeth, and that is available in cinemas this weekend. If you want to check it out, get off the sofa, get outside, go to cinema, point your face at the screen. If, of course, that's what you wish to do. Uh, but that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Uh, join us next week for more film-related fun, where we'll be joined by... Jay Baruchel, who is one of the stars and also the director of Random Acts of Violence, a movie that will debut next week on Shudder. And there may be also another guest in the mix as well, but that is not confirmed as of yet. But Jay Baruchel, very, very excited about that indeed. But until then, until we meet again, until at a suspicious occasion, it is goodbye. From Frito Pendeo himself, Nick Dissemblian. Bye-bye. 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 It is goodbye from Project Podcast, Ben Travis. I am off to go and score my next hit of meth or cocaine or power pills or whatever I'm on these days. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable what this man gets up to. If he's, if he's still alive by this time next week, I'll be amazed. Anyway, it is goodbye from Pistol Shrimp O'Hara. What, what's going mm. on there? It's a reference to Project Power. There's much oh. discussion of pistol shrimps. Interesting. Interesting. Okay, well, we'll get into that in the spoiler special. And it is goodbye from me, Miami Vice President. I'm off to father 32 of the world's stupidest children. Thanks so much for listening. See you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.